Welcome to Pragmatic. Pragmatic is a weekly discussion show contemplating the practical application of technology. Exploring the real-world trade-offs, we look at how great ideas are transformed into products and services that can change our lives. Nothing is as simple as it seems. This episode is sponsored by Igloo, an internet you'll actually like. Built with easy-to-use apps like file sharing, blogs, calendars, task management, and more. Visit igloosoftware, all one word, dot com slash pragmatic to get started. It's free to use for up to 10 people. This episode is also sponsored by lynda.com. lynda.com is the easy and affordable way to learn we can instantly stream thousands of courses created by experts in their fields of business, software, web development, graphic design, and lots more. Visit lynda.com pragmatic to get a free 10-day trial. If you've ever wanted to learn something new, what are you waiting for? We'll talk about them some more during the show. I'm your host, John Chigi, and my guest host for this, the 50th episode of Pragmatic, is very special. Not only do we have a few odd things in common, like an eye for detail, and speaking of eyes, horrible eyesight, um, my contacts are now uh, minus 4.25x, but anyway, that's to compensate for an astigmatism, apparently. Anyway, okay, so both uh, of our first computers was a VIC-20. Neither of us are excited about air travel for similar reasons, and so on and so forth. Anyway, my guest host originally became internet popular, I suppose you could say, through his writing on Ars Technica, writing uh, brief commentaries on OS X releases, and more recently for a podcast called Hypercritical, which had 98 actual episodes, but ended. Uh, currently, he's host of a pop- of the popular Accidental Tech podcast with Marco Armit and Casey Liss. I am, of course, referring to John Syracuse, and thank you, John, for coming on the show. I didn't realize this was episode 50. That's exciting. Yeah. You should You should end your podcast now. What? No, no. <laughs> it's a nice just, round number. Isn't well, that how just, we do it? We just stop. It, it, yeah, well, you stopped at... Okay, but remember, you stopped at 100, but technically it was really only 98 because one of them was a public service announcement and one of them didn't have you on it. So, you know, I'm just saying. Episode number in the RSS feed says 100. I stopped <sighs> is, at 100. But what That's numbers, all that matters. Uh, yeah, I suppose so. But I, I go back and forth on this if numbers mean anything. It's kind of like an age. I mean, how many cycles around the sun have you done? It's just an arbitrary measure of something. But never mind, I don't mind that. It's okay. Um, uh, no, I'm not stopping now. Anyway, right, lovely. Okay, so um, I thought it would be wonderful to get you on uh, to talk about something that we've both experienced, although I think you've been through a tougher time than I have, and that's uh, repetitive strain injury, or RSI for short. But before we get stuck into that, how much did you love that VIC-20? Because I love mine. I miss mine sometimes. My memories of my VIC-20 are very vague. I think the only concrete memory I really have of it is there was pressing the keys that made blocks of color on the screen you know, there were <laughs> some keys that would like make you know like a like a, a yellow cursor shape so you could do yellow mm-hmm. yellow yellow blue blue mm-hmm. blue yeah and i don't you know that's a vague memory did it even have that many colors i don't know and writing basic <laughs> programs of just you know printing your name across the screen and that's it and like the shape of the thing the color of the thing what it felt like where mm-hmm. it was in the living room in relation to the tv but that's about it i was young well, I, I was young too, but I played with it for for years on and off until we got a, I, I hate to say real computer because it was a it was a, a PC running DOS, but never mind that. Um, yeah, it was it's what I had. So there you go. But the VIC-20, no, the memory I had was the, the silly expansion slot on the back, uh, which had a more like an edge connector PCB uh, connection into it. So it was very, 
uh, rough around the edges, shall we say. And we had a game on a cartridge called Race Around the Block and we had a memory expansion cartridge which you needed to play other certain certain other things. So, of course, you only had one slot and my memory was inserting and removing those cards was physically difficult and didn't always work reliably. So you'd put it in, it wouldn't load and you'd have to remove it and try and clean the contacts and push it back in again. It was... Uh, anyway. <sighs> that was a while yeah, ago. My, my VIC-20 was a rental we didn't own it. It was rented by my oh, family. Wow. Okay. They didn't, cool. want to they didn't want to take the plunge and spend all this money to buy a computer at that point. It's like, we'll just rent one, see what it's like. That was back in the days when you plug it straight into the TV set because yep. yeah, because monitors weren't a thing. Well, I don't think that was so much of a um, a thing for the home. Certainly not a thing for a family that's renting a VIC-20. No, no, true. Anyway, well, there you go. So, um RSI. And one of the funny things in doing the prep for this episode, I found myself involuntarily shaking out my right hand. Uh, I'm getting our phantom RSI pains and I know they're phantom RSI pains, but I'm still getting them. It's it's like, don't think of the white elephant, right? What are you thinking yeah, that's, about? That, that's part of the whole thing with repetitive strain injury is the thinking about your body parts is part of, part of dealing with it. Hmm, exactly. So the thing is, um, there's a... The New Jersey Department of Health and Senior Services, which, you know, it sounds like it's for old people, but we're not old. So anyway, um, anyway, their Public uh, Employees Occupational Health and Safety Program defines RSI as an injury to the musculoskeletal or ner and nervous systems that may be caused by repetitive tasks, forceful exertions, vibrations, mechanical compression or sustained or awkward positions. <sighs> which is long-winded, but pretty well covers it all. Um, but specifically not the hands, uh, only the hands, which is you know a common thing that everyone in our line of work is mostly concerned about RSI as it relates to hands and arms and so on, but obviously it can apply to any part of the body. So apparently it was first identified in the 1700s by an Italian guy by the name of Bernardino Ramazzini. <laughs> Sounds Italian. Um and uh, he described RSI in more than uh, 20 different categories of industrial workers in Italy, including musicians and, uh, and uh, desk clerks. But carpal tunnel syndrome is a specific sub-category uh, within RSI. It was first identified by a British surgeon, James Paget, in 1854. So, so it's not a new thing. But the first recorded mass incidence of RSI was actually in 1912 in America with uh, telegraphs cramp from the poor telegraph operators sending Morse code all day long and I can completely understand that since I've learnt Morse code and fortunately they didn't send it all day long because it was just too slow and tedious and talking's a lot quicker as well as one of the yeah. things that I didn't understand about amateur radio because it's like here talk in Morse code I'm like but I can talk to you verbally why would I choose an inferior method of communication but okay yeah RSI is uh is basically it's not meaningless but it's close to meaningless because mm. it is it is such it's an umbrella term and it's such a huge umbrella it covers any, like, the definition is so incredibly broad. The only reason it has to be there is because you're like, I've injured myself by doing the same thing over and over again. And that covers such a, a wide spectrum. And uh, it, when you say you've suffered from RSI, it's almost like you've, you know, I'm, I'm suffered from, suffering from bacteria or a <laughs> virus. Like, those are pretty broad categories. There's a lot of different viruses, a lot of different bacteria, and they're of varying severity to, uh, you know, uh, what they're going to do to you, uh, how long they're going to take, are they going to kill you, is it just going to be the sniffles, you know? Hmm, exactly. So, uh, yeah, exactly. And, and RSI is one of those, as you say, an umbrella term that sort of covers so many different types of injuries. So what I want to do is um, 
in a little bit or would break out some of the, the classified subtypes. But uh, yeah, there's actually quite a lot more to it. But to, just to try and keep this down and focused, uh, I just want to specifically talk about the RSI injuries that would be sustained in computer-intensive jobs because, well, A, that's both of our lines of work and B, a lot of the listeners to the show's lines of work. There's a lot of possessives there. The point is that I think it's probably the most of most interest. So we'll just focus on those. But the the bottom line, I, I guess I get into the bottom line at the beginning. But you know, lots of bad habits will lead to damage in much much less time, whereas very few bad habits will prevent injury for a significantly long period of time. But it, but you can't actually. There's no set of rules that you can follow that will guarantee you will never get RSI. And this is the thing that you know people say, oh, you use, use an ergonomic keyboard, you can use an ergonomic mouse, or use a Dvorak layout of all things, you know, and, and you won't get RSI. But it's just that's just not true. At least, it, yeah. It's like motion sickness. Motion sickness is another uh, a very similar par- parallel to that. Uh, some people get motion sick like all the time. I'm one of those people, you know, any kind of motion they get sick. Right. Other people like, oh, I don't I don't get motion sickness. I'm fine. Right. But that's not the case that everybody gets motion sick. It's just a question of what it takes. For some people, it would take going up, you know, into a jet fighter plane, which is something Mm. that people are never going to do. Right. So you're fine. So basically, when you say I don't get motion sick, that's basically true for, you know, for any reasonable definition, because you're like, look, you have to do something incredibly extreme to to my body to make me get sick. I basically don't get motion sick. And repetitive strain injuries like that too. You say, I don't get repetitive strain injuries. Some people, through genetics or whatever, any normal activity they do, they're fine. But anybody can be made to throw up by being moved around, and anybody can be made to get a repetitive strain injury by doing some very awkward thing over and over again. It's just a question of how much it takes. And so, this really is a continuum. Um, and that's why you, until you know where you are in that continuum, you should never say, I have nothing to worry about. I don't get motion sick. And then you, you know, go out on a crab boat in, in the North Atlantic and then, and, you know, and then you're like, well, actually I do get motion sick, but it, it's, it, it, here's my threshold, right? So repetitive strain injury, you own, the only way you know what, what will cause you to get injury is by getting injured. So you shouldn't be like, well, I've never had a problem before. And I've been doing this my whole life, especially when you're young, you're like a teenager and your body's growing. Eventually you will stop growing, you'll become an adult, and you'll become more susceptible to injury because your body's not constantly making, you know, repairing itself like it did when you were uh, 11 years old. So, uh, yeah, some people are lucky enough that that no normal computer-using activity will probably affect them, but you don't know if that's you until you get injured, basically. Yeah, when you were younger, did any older people say, you're going to be old one day, Sonny? Did anyone, or something like that, did anyone ever say that to you when you were a kid? I wish more people had told me I was going to get RSI. <laughs> They told yeah. me to get off the computer because it would rot my brain. They did occasionally mm. mention posture, but nobody said stop typing and using the mouse because you're gonna just you know, you're gonna get repetitive strain because it wasn't a thing that people knew about when I was a kid or not. And I That's used true. the computer like crazy with terrible ergonomics for my entire childhood, and I was fine because uh, when you're a kid, you can do a lot of things and be just fine, right? Yeah, you bounce back really quick. And then you get older and everything slows down, and it's not quite so. Yeah, the glory days are over, kind of yeah. thing. But and anyway. that can, like, especially if you start with computers like we did when we are you know, the VIC-20, you start when you're young and you spend basically your entire life that you can remember using computers pretty much as much as you want. Uh, you're like, well, obviously I'm one of those lucky people who, for whom normal activity does not cause injury. Because look at me. I spent my entire life playing video games, playing with computers, and I'm just fine. Uh, and that's the wrong thing to think because you don't know that you're going to be fine. Like, it, it, RSI hit me when I was in my mid-20s. Uh, and up until that point... 
I believe me, I had been using the computer plenty. And it was like, I guess I'm just one of those lucky people who doesn't have that those things that I hear about, you know? Mm. Well, see, my case. Yeah, exactly. And in my, in my case, I didn't start having problems with RSI until only a year ago. So although admittedly, you know, now that I've felt what it feels like, uh, thinking back, it actually started earlier than that. But it's one of those things that you choose to ignore or you can't... It's like I can't plug into someone else's brain who's had a certain kind of injury. So I know how that injury feels. So until I learn how that injury feels, I can't actually enunciate to anybody that that is actually what I'm feeling is that injury. And until we become the Borg, and I'm not suggesting we necessarily should, but you know, if we did, then that would make that certain diagnosis a lot easier, I guess. But Yeah, that's, that's the big thing about people who like, you, until you sort of pass the point of serious injury, we're like, okay, something is seriously wrong. For months or years leading up to that point, those people, including myself, have been suffering from symptoms and been basically totally unaware of them, ignoring them, not associating them with anything, thinking, oh, I'm just tired, whatever. Uh, and, it, you know, it's like you just you just shake it off. You're just like, oh, well, whatever. Like, I felt a little stiff. And then, like, you don't even think about it. You're just like, I go to bed. Boy, that was a tiring day of computing. You wake up. You're fine the next morning. You just keep going. You just don't think about it. And as soon as you, you know, you, something, you do get injured seriously and you have that flare-up, all of a sudden, you if you're you know eventually you become hyper aware of every part of every part of your body that is connected to that part of your body that's injured, and you realize you can feel yourself creeping up to that again. Like you you become aware of things you weren't aware of before. You you start to look back on your past self and say, how was I so oblivious mm. to the signals my body was sending me for this for this incredible amount of time that I didn't even notice this. It's almost it's almost insane looking back when you think about it after after it's after you've actually been injured like you felt that injury it's just it is it is strange but it's one of those things um, so okay um, now you have spoken about this on an episode of Hypercritical it was episode number six and it was between fifty minutes and thirty seconds and one hour and six minutes uh, which is a sum total of around about um, you know well. 15 minutes and 30 seconds roughly. So uh, feel free. It's There'll be a link in the show notes to go and have a quick listen to that if you'd like. But there's a lot of stuff in there, a lot of stuff about RSI that um, that you didn't discuss some of the other machinations of it. I really wanted to sort of dive into that a bit. But um, before I start t- too far down this track, I guess I'm curious, at what age did you do you consider that you learned how to touch type? Because you sort of, you can, based on what I've heard, you can sort of touch type. Maybe you can... Yeah, I, I don't type correctly. I took typing classes from, you know, very young age, single digit ages, because I was kind of a prerequisite by my parents. Like, well, if you want to have computers, you're going to learn how to type because typing is one of those things you have to learn how to do on computers. So I learned mm-hmm. to type on like, you know, the IBM Selectric little ball typewriter type oh, yeah. things. Remember yep, those? Yep. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, typing, uh, took the typing classes, did all the things you're supposed to do, fingers on the home keys or whatever. But like, I just suffered through those typing classes and I hated them and I didn't actually learn anything. Instead, what I continued to do when I was out of that class was whatever the hell I felt like. And I do it to this day. I type entirely incorrectly with my fingers on all the wrong keys, only using probably like my occasionally my pinky to hit a modifier, my thumb for the space bar and my first two fingers. And like, if you saw me type, it's a mess. Uh, But bottom line is I can type while staring at the screen most of the time i can program while staring at the stream most of the time which involves you know curly braces and parentheses or whatever i don't have to look down at my hands and i've been like that for years but i'm not doing it the correct way okay so when you say you took lessons i've never learned to touch type the right way okay but when you say you took lessons you mean like in an actual classroom environment with a bunch of yes in an actual classroom with a teacher 
Yeah, like not just one, many classes, many typing classes over many years, and just I was a very stubborn child. And just so just actually, like, wow. okay, so I, I did the exercises, you know, mm. and it just never, I never, you know, I just did what I did to get through the class, and then I went back to, you know, how I want to use the computer, which was different. Okay. Well, see, what I what my experience was, I started out with a typing tutor program, not on the VIC-20. Oh, I don't even want to imagine how bad I was in the VIC-20. I was would have been hunting and pecking, but as, as you say, memories of that age are a bit fuzzy. But the, the, when I got to the PC, I started on a typing tutor program, which, you know, I thought I was doing okay. But then when I got to high school, uh, grade, hang on, eighth, eighth and ninth grade, I actually did take uh, typing classes, but they were school classes. And... The weird thing for me was learning just how bad I was when I when I got in there. I thought, oh, I've done typing tutor on my computer. I'm I'm, I'm pretty fast. I'm pretty good. And that's when you learn. Okay, you're typing on a typewriter. You've got to have a correcting. You've got a correcting tape on some of them. And when I started the first six months, I was actually learning on manual typewriters uh, because we hadn't uh, they hadn't gotten rid of all of the manual typewriters when I first started learning it. And so we were, you know, learning on those. And of course, you know, there's no correcting tape. So, you know, you don't want to make a mistake and your accuracy has got to be greater than 95% or 98%. And um, it was it was weird for me. And it was also cool because I was one of three guys um, in the entire grade doing typing. Um, yeah. Anyway, but uh, it was, uh, I learned how to type relatively well. But my biggest um, failing is my index fingers keep crossing the imaginary line. Um, where my teachers often threatened to put a physical divider between the keys, which they did for some problem students to stop their fingers from wandering. Um, but uh, so far as looking at a document and then typing it out, it's I, I have this thing where I can do about 50, 60 words a minute if I glance away from time to time. And it's like, but if I can trust myself it's to not look away from the keys, then I can sort of get an extra 20, 30 words a minute because it, that looking away really slows you down. So I... Um, I do okay, but I don't do as much programming these days as I used to. And most of the programming that I do do is not uh, is more graphical based, as in you know, it's PLC programming packages these days are all um, object, uh, drag an object to link this up. It's more mouse driven than it is keyboard driven. And I haven't done too much of that recently. Yeah. Some, do some scripting stuff. But. I spent most of my computing time using the mouse too. Like I, that's why typing was so disconnected because I wasn't using a command line. As soon as I got my Mac in 1984, it was all about using the mouse and then maybe some modifier keys. It was just not a lot of typing. Even in a text adventure game, you spend most of your time thinking and reading and then a little bit of time typing. So are you blaming the Mac for not having a command line interface initially? No, I just said like that's <laughs> like comp computing for me was not about typing because I didn't really start programming in earnest until I was in college. Like I just played around mm. with it until then so you know using a computer meant using a mouse and i'm really good with a mouse uh not so good with typing yeah i sort of uh yeah no that's fair enough i'm i used to i was the other way around i started out spending too much time in dos so i i found the mouse to be a little bit odd in the early days but i sort of got used to it and i'm a bit of a convert now i like trackpads but that's another story we'll get to that but anyway um right so um two broad categories of rsi uh, musculoskeletal disorders and diffuse RSI cases. So, musculoskeletal disorders. I just want to list off some of them and some of the what, what the conditions are. So, um, first one is uh, bursitis. Uh, a bursa is a sac containing fluid, and that allows the two surfaces to move uh, joints without fr without much friction uh, in separate directions. But it's uh, most often located in parts of the body where muscles or tendons glide over joints, like knees and shoulders. Uh, bursitis is therefore obviously inflammation of that sac and it's just caused by continual friction of the bursa. So that's one specific one. 
Now, this one, I, next one, I have no idea how to pronounce it exactly. I looked for a pronunciation, but it's someone's name. Um, De, I think it's DeQuervian's or DeQuervain's syndrome, uh, also referred to as mother's wrist or and washerwoman's sprain, which, you know, looking from this point in history backwards, this sounds very sexist, but irrespective. Uh, an inflammation of the tunnel that encapsulates the two tendons that moderate the movement of the thumb. Because there's actually separate tendons that drive the uh, uh, the fingers versus uh, the, the thumb and the pinky as well, I think, from memory. Uh, so sufferers have a tender and swollen thumb, and that affects your ability to actually grip objects, which is doesn't sound particularly pleasant. Uh, next one on the list is... Uh, du- oh, God, I'm going to struggle with this one too. Uh, Dupertin's Dupertin, Contracture which is the inability to fully straighten your fingers into an open, flat palm. Um, usually the ring and the little finger are affected the most, caused by an accumulation of scar tissue underneath the skin at the base of the finger where it meets the palm, and the tissue thickens and it shortens over time. Eventually, the tendons lose free movement, and uh, in serious cases, the fingers can't be straightened at all. Obviously, that's going to be a, a bit problematic. Um, dystonia, more commonly referred to as writer's cramp, Actually, that's one. Have you ever um, had writer's cramp? No, I've felt my hand be in pain after writing longhand, but that's a long time ago. I don't write with a pen at all or pencil anymore at all. Yeah, I had the same thing. When I went through uni, um, I would go through, uh, you know, you know, it's like a day of lectures, like six hours of lectures, and it was all handwritten notes, overhead slides, blackboards, sorry, uh, chalkboards, or I suppose in the last year, they started retrofitting whiteboards. Like, yay, that's that's new fandangled stuff, that is. And I used to write pages and pages and pages of notes in my lecture notes uh, books. And um, I, at the end of the day, I'd get, my hand was so cramping up. It was so sore. But the funny thing is now, recently, if I were to try that, I would get maybe a quarter of the page down and I'd be my hand would be cramping because I hardly write anything anymore. Who does? Who, that's what keyboards are for. Exactly, exactly. So anyway, all right, so yeah, writer's cramp, involuntary muscle spasms, involuntary hand tremors and twisting movements by the fingers, and sometimes even other parts of the body are affected, but uh, the tension in the hand and the arm uh, can cause an unnecessarily strong grip on your writing implement, most likely a pen, I suppose. It's uh, oddly really prevalent amongst writers, that's strange, but it's also seen in musicians and office workers. So, okay, games keep us thumb. Also known as trigger thumb or skier's thumb is caused by strain under the ulnar collateral ligament causes swelling and pain specifically to the thumb. Uh, ganglions. Uh, a friend of mine had these once. Cyst forms when tissues surrounding various finger and wrist joints become inflamed and they swell with fluid. It's usually painless, but it causes some discomfort because the cyst is sort of in the way. And if it's directly on a joint and you physically bump it against a hard surface, it can, can sting quite a bit. And uh, ganglions can increase in size over time, but they usually disappear of their own accord given enough time. But the mechanisms that cause ganglions are the same that are generally thought to con- to contribute to rheumatoid arthritis. So, uh, development of ganglions could be a predictor of future arthritis. Is you know it's more of a causal link than anything. But anyway, okay, Raynaud's disease: blood supply to the bodily extremity is interrupted or inconsistent, usually due to damage from, to the nerve endings, and it's associated with prolonged use of vibrating machinery. Uh, it sometimes can be preceded by an infection caused by the lower blood flow uh, or working in cold conditions. Not so much a, a problem where I live, but perhaps more of a problem in your neck of the woods. But it usually affects the fingers and fingers can become sort of blue or white um, the blood due to the blood vessel constriction. Anyway, it can ranges from like a tingling sensation like pins and needles to being very, very painful. And some cases have been reported where gangrene sets in. That's horrible. But anyway, 
definitely not. Haven't had that one. Okay, a few more. Tendonitis is an umbrella term for the swelling of the tendons in the body uh, from overuse causing tears in the tendons. And a number of more specific RSI conditions are grouped under tendonitis as a category, such as carpal tunnel syndrome or epicondylitis, which is the next one. That's referred to more commonly as golfer's elbow or tennis elbow, affecting, oddly, the elbow. Anyway, caused by inflammation of the tendons that connect to the bone, exacerbated by the repeated strain of the forearm muscles that extend down to the arms, the wrist and the fingers and everything. Anyway, the extension and twisting of the arms is the biggest contributor. So it's more common amongst sports people. So I said we're going to focus on, on uh, computing injuries, so I should keep moving. Cubital tunnel syndrome, caused when the ulnar nerve is pinched along the elbow's edge, and this compression causes the tingling and painful feeling uh, in the fingers. It generally affects the ring finger and the little fingers. So uh, finally, the big one, which is the one everyone goes on about, carpal tunnel syndrome. And that's the median nerve, which runs from the forearm to the palm of the hand. And it becomes uh, compressed or squeezed at the wrist. And it affects the first three fingers primarily. Now, the thing about this is that, and some of these is that they're most commonly genetic predispositions. So there's a narrowing of the tunnel. And it's three times more common in jobs requiring assembly over data entry or keyboard-related jobs, which is something everyone thinks, oh, yeah, I'm working on a computer all day and I've got RSI, therefore I've got carpal tunnel syndrome, and that's just not true. The other thing that's interesting uh, that I didn't realize and I was doing research for this topic is that women are actually three times more likely to develop this than men are for some reason, which is interesting. Anyway, so the result, it's a result of the combination of factors that increases pressure on the median nerve and the tendons in the carpal tunnel. It's not actually a problem with the nerve itself. It can be be caused by trauma or injury to the wrist, overactivity overactivity of the pituitary gland, hypothyroidism, rheumatoid arthritis, of course, mechanical problems in the wrist joint, um, repeated work stress, repeated use of vibrating hand tools, and fluid retention during pregnancy or menopause. And on that topic, my wife actually was diagnosed with carpal tunnel syndrome when she was pregnant with our fourth child. And... It was quite extreme. She had to wear a wrist splint every night for months. It started off in, in one wrist, was prevalent in the left, and then uh, in the last month of the pregnancy, she ended up wearing one on both hands. So, you know, that's pretty severe. And it's more or less at this point that I'm curious um, what you were diagnosed with. Was it any of those? It's actually difficult getting any sort of solid diagnosis for repetitive strain injury because you'll end up going to your doctor with a series of like vague symptoms uh, and they don't have x-ray vision. They can't tell exactly what's going on in your body. And most of the time you have a little bit of some of these. So uh, tendonitis was the, the, the diagnosis that would most readily be given. Uh, the only thing you can do uh, for the more exotic ones, is a rule out things like carpal tunnel functions. Because like I said, carpal tunnel is actually very rare. Uh, just in, in general, rare in repetitive strain injury. And you, there are specific you know motions with your wrists and tests that you can see. If you have carpal tunnel, this will hurt like hell. And if it doesn't, then you don't have that. And it's really easy to eliminate those. But then what you're left with is like, well, this hurts and that hurts and that hurts and that hurts. And, and the difficulty is they're like, well, you probably have some mild tendonitis and maybe you have this and maybe you have that. And the the... The most exotic thing I think about diagnosis is that very often where you are feeling the pain is not where the injury is. You just mentioned, which I forget which one it was, like a cubital tunnel or something where it's like Mm -hmm. something, a nerve in your elbow, but you feel it in your, in your pinky and your ring finger. Uh, I I had that one way back when, 
uh, you know, sort of ting- num- numbness or tingling in your, in your pinky and ring finger, but the injury is not to your finger or your hand. It's farther up. And, and uh, what is it? There's a whole series of like things called thoracic outlet syndrome, where like all the all the nerves and stuff that go through basically your shoulder. Uh, if that if you have bad posture and you're all hunched up over there and everything is all pinched up in your shoulders, you will feel it lower down in your wrists and mm-hmm. and your hands. But the problem is not there. The problem is in your shoulders. So by stretching out your shoulders and doing these exercises to have a better, better posture, suddenly your hands feel better. Um, I've I've had a menagerie of these things, and so it, it's not like if they they can tell you even if they could tell you, oh, I can I can you know do fantastic voyage, go into your body and tell you this precise tendon is inflamed. It's not like this. Oh, now I have a specific pill for you or something. Like there's almost never, you know. The only good thing about carpal tunnel is there, are, you know, surgical procedures to help fix that. Because like if we know this is exactly the problem, we can go in there and open this up and make it a little bit better. But if you just have sort of you know tendonitis and a bunch of parts of your body is all pinched up, squeezing on your nerves and tendons, uh, there's no one thing you can do to fix that. So that my, my diagnoses were like mild tendonitis uh, and some nerve constriction causing you know blood flow constriction nerve constriction and limited motion from a muscle shortening up and you know it, the works but no there's you never you're, you're almost never going to get a very precise diagnosis that you know exactly what you need to do for it. it's always a kind of like a whole body solution absolutely right and uh, we'll get to that um when we start talking about ergonomics shortly so uh, but before we uh, go any further, I'd like to talk about our uh, first sponsor for the episode, and that's uh, Igloo Software. Now, in engineering, I've worked in a lot of companies that use a mis- mishmash collection of different tools to provide the basic functionality you need to get work done. Things like file sharing, wikis, announcement pages, and department landing pages. They're disconnected, disorganized, and they only ever seem to work in Internet Explorer 7, ugh, and on your company-provided desktop. Igloo is an intranet you'll actually like. They bring the ease of use from consumer software into your corporate environment by using familiar apps like Shared Calendar, Twitter-like microblogs, file sharing, and lots more. Everything can be social with comments and like buttons, and anyone can add a comment based on their permissions uh, with drag-and-drop widgets and a WYSIWYG editor. Everyone loves WYSIWYG. What you see is what you get. Anyway... You can also customize everything inside your igloo, globally, across a team space, or even a single page. And if they want more, they can also have an in-house team of web developers and graphic designers from igloo that will help you customize the platform completely to fit your brand and your business. The free trial experience comes preloaded with three templates, an app-based intranet, a corporate intranet, and a customer community. But once you're in there, it's surprisingly easy to start reorganizing it to fit what you need to do. And thanks to the built-in responsive design, it works on any device you would choose to use, laptop, tablet, phone, with all the major browsers, uh, including Internet Explorer 8 and up, Chrome, Safari, Firefox, and on iOS and Android's native browsers too. They also have a dedicated, dedicated apps for iOS, Android, and BlackBerry. So... Add a file to Igloo and it can be easily shared and seen by others in your Igloo. If someone wants to edit the file, reserve and download it, make your edits, then upload it. If you change your mind, you can release the lock. It's all done through the browser. So there's version control done pretty much automatically and you can add revision change information every time. Beyond that, you can associate tasks with the document, remind others to review it, make comments and lots more. It's so much nicer than SharePoint. If you're not ready to abandon SharePoint yet, that's fine. With Igloo, you can use SharePoint to archive your documents, but you can collaborate within Igloo to leverage the power of both. 
So that's for your users, but what if you're in charge of IT? Well, Igloo handles the security, hosting, and management for you. Their data center partner is SSAE 16 certified. They offer SSL encryption, disaster recovery, single tenant and shared environments, and integration with many authentication and sync systems, including SAML, services, and LDAP. Mid to late last year, as of 2013, I was working for a startup company called Project Facilitation. And based on my own experiences trialing it myself privately, we used it to begin building our own intranet. It was really handy, saved us for having to develop a lot and try to integrate the different pieces that we needed. Adding and moving around the features we needed was as easy as drag and drop. And what you see is what you get really does make it easy to tailor it to just the way you like. And no developer skills are really necessary and there's a very minimal learning curve. Now, you may have heard other people talking about Igloo in the past, but take it from me as someone that's actually used it. It's worth your time to look into it. So how can you look into it? It's easy. Just go to igloosoftware, all one word, .com slash pragmatic and sign up for a trial. It's free to use for groups of up to 10 people. There's no credit card required, no obligation. Just sign up and have a play today. And I say play because it's so nice, it doesn't feel like work. Anyway, I'd like to thank Igloo for sponsoring, once again, for sponsoring Pragmatic. Okay. So the next thing to talk about is the other umbrella category. So there are two categories of RSI. And the other one is diffuse RSI. And this is the one, I hate this, but this is just a reality. And the reality is that every categorization system out there pretty much seems to have a category called general. And I refer you to episode seven of this podcast of that title. Inevitably, as medical sciences knowledge increases on any kind of disorder, specific subtypes are classified, named, individually diagnosable, and they can have more specific treatments in some cases. Ultimately, there's an umbrella term that's left over for those that they haven't reached that point yet, and that's what diffuse RSI is, for the want of a better description. It's the we don't know what it is yet diagnosis. So, yeah. And that's what I got. <clears throat> okay. Um, so, ergonomics. Do you consider that you... Uh, have an ergonomic setup, John? Uh, not really. It's better than it was. There's there's definitely a dividing line in my history of using computers. It's before I had problems with RSI and after. And my before setups were just universally awful. Yeah. My after setups are reasonable. But I don't have a special ergonomic keyboard. I don't have a special ergonomic mouse. Uh, there's I'm using just stock equipment. I just have it better positioned so that better positions for my body so my my body's in slightly more neutral position and the reason by the way i don't have an ergonomic keyboard or anything is because i'm such a terrible typist <laughs> and i can't i can't type at all on ergonomic split keyboards i bet they would probably help me but like you talked about crossing the line like yeah. I, I if i try to type on an ergonomic keyboard i'll reach all the way across that gigantic gap and type mm -hmm. the keys. Yep. like yep. It's, it's terrible like so oh, yeah I, I mean maybe i would i don't know i i just never I just never got past the barrier of trying those. They would probably help me a little bit, as probably would an ergonomic mouse, but uh, all dog new tricks. Yeah, well we'll, well, we'll we'll talk about those in a minute, but I actually did used to have um, a Microsoft Natural keyboard, which is supposedly ergonomic, and I had exactly that problem where my, my finger would go across the other side and my fingers would start to like bump into each other because I was I was crossing the line. It really slowed me down until... Because the, the number six was on the wrong side, and I say... I say the wrong side. Some people would say it's the right side, and it's like, oh, where do you draw the visible line? But anyway, all right. So uh, let, let's got to start somewhere. So let's start with the desk and the footrest. So just to run through the ergonomics, the, the good ideas, the not so good ideas. 
So desktop, desk and footrest. So of the, the idea of a footrest is it lifts your feet slightly so that you can maintain a right angle of your knees um, if you've got the correct desk height. And the desk height should be adjustable to ensure your arms are 90 degrees when your chair is correctly positioned. And, you know, I say the desk height should be adjustable. <laughs> Up until recently, in fact, every company that I've worked for until the one I'm currently working for, none of their desks were height adjustable. Uh, does your company have height adjustable desks? They're all over the place now. Every standing desks are all the rage, and yeah, and the standing mm. desks are also height adjustable. You know, obviously they go all the way up to standing position, but they also go down to to lower positions. But yeah, this is the first company that I've worked at. But you know, this this has been a trend that's been a long time in coming, and now finally uh, adjustable height desks. Uh, but before that, what you do have usually is adjustable height chairs, and that's where the footrest comes in because mm -hmm. you can uh, move your chair to the right height, and then if your legs are dangling then you can get a footrest to try to, to sort of complete the picture while keeping your desk at whatever, you know, height it's just fixed that. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think it's great that the desks are now height adjustable because that's one of the things that led to my problem was having a desk that was way too high. So, um, so yeah, adjusting your desk height is important and you should take the time to do it. I know it's a pain in the neck for a lot of them. I mean, the, the motorized ones, the electric motorized ones, you've seen those ones? You can push the button up and down. Yep, no, that's what we have at work. Ah, oh, geez, you're lucky. Now, we've got the ones that have got the pin in them. So the pin in there's like, uh, be about a dozen preset uh, height selectable holes on each of the, uh, well, the bottom of the desk is actually a, a U-shaped uh, piece of metal. So you, you take the pin out on one side and it kind of sets, it's sort of connected. So you, you slide two up at once and you put a pin in the front, pin in the back. It's a bit of a pain to set it up because someone has to lift it while you adjust the pin height. But uh, So we don't have the super flash ones you've got. That's barbaric. Yeah, you need the electric ones. They're neat. <laughs> I'll petition. I, I don't actually have one at work, but, but uh, there are a lot of people around me do have one. I'm actually hoping to get one when I move my desk in the the coming year. But uh, are you yeah, gonna get I'd, a gonna get a window view, window uh, seat? I'd, pff, I'd <laughs> <laughs> Why do programmers we never get the window seat? Oh, he's happy in his cubicle. But no, I would go off. I would, yeah. I'm usually cold by the window. I would rather just have an office with a door that closes. Yeah, oh, yeah, okay, I hear you on that. That's fair enough. Why is it companies are going to a more open plan too? I mean, are Cheaper. they doing that? That's why. They still it's want to pay for partitions. It, it's, it's not that the partitions cost money, although they do. It's that you can pack more people into a smaller space. That's what it is. Yeah, the height of the partition seems to be getting lower though. I always figured they were just... Eh. I'd like to know the, if there have been any decent studies, a topic for another episode maybe, and, and see whether or not there's actually a difference between, uh, in terms of productivity from having a cubicalized culture or having a semi-open office culture. There was a recent, there was a good story on that recently, talking about open versus closed offices mm -hmm. and young versus old people and whatever. I'd, I'll try to dig up the link and send it to you after. But uh... Yeah, that'd be interesting. Because I, yeah, because I just, I've noticed this trend and it, it just irritates the heck out of me because I, I started out when I was working... Uh, in North America, I was working at Nortel in Calgary, and they had cubicles that were pretty five foot, maybe five and a half foot tall. So, you know, they were you you sitting at your desk, you saw nothing of the outside, anything except the little crack in the door. Well, it wasn't a doorway; it was more of a an open area that you could walk through. But um, yeah, some people actually got those um, xylophone, not xylophone, you know, like a stretchy door that folds up. I don't know what it's. You'd think I'd know that, but I'm an electrical engineer. Accordion? So. Yes, like an accordion door. Yes, like an accordion door then. Is that what they're technically called? I don't know. Yeah, That's, that's, a, that's a musical instrument that it folds up. That's it. Oh, let's run with that. It's an accordion door. Everyone will know what we mean. Okay. Anyway, I'm getting sidetracked here. <sighs> right. So, uh, right. So, and you mentioned standing desks, and I did have a look into that. So, 
Uh, standing desk should be at a height where your arms are at 90 degrees when you're standing. And you know, But the thing with standing desks though is that they're a bit of a mixed bag because there's no lumbar support, obviously, because you're standing. And you, know, you, you, you need to correct your own posture. But some people report that they have better posture when they're standing at a standing desk than if they were sitting, despite the fact there is no lumbar support. So the interesting thing is though, if you look at your reaching envelope, and that is to say, you know, I can lean over and reach much further when I'm in a standing position than I can in a sitting position. And, you know, people say, oh, well, I've got wheels on my chair. I can roll my chair across and so on and so forth. But, you know, some carpets that you will sit on, you know, that, that the wheels are sitting on may not, um, may have an annoying coefficient of friction and take a lot of energy to actually move across. So you tend to, to lean further and it's bad ergonomically. So there's no question that your reach envelope is, is larger when you're standing. And there's therefore less energy required to fetch, refer to other nearby information when you're standing rather than sitting. But there's more energy required to stand than to sit. And a lot of companies that I've worked at will not give you a standing desk. Um, just they, they want, you know, you can ask for it, but they won't give it to you. Maybe that's different. Or maybe, maybe that's something that's, that's, like you say, is a long time coming in North America. Maybe it's, it's coming here. But these desks that I've got, I was talking about, they're height adjustable, but they're not, you can't make them standing desks. So it's a bit of a mixed bag with standing desks. I'm not totally sold on it. And ergonomically, there's no, there's no real significant conclusive proof that standing is necessarily better. It's certainly better for some tasks than others, but that's about as far as I'd go. Well, there's all those studies that say that the amount of time you sit per day is correlated with like how soon you die and all these other crazy, you know, sort of, <laughs> you know, they're, they're not, it's just, it's just correlations, but they're yes. strong correlations and you're not, people get freaked out about them. So that's why I think all these standing desks are appearing. Yeah, I agree absolutely, and it's and it's drawing the incorrect conclusion from from the data, and that's that that's a that's a trap. But honestly, uh, yeah, we'll we'll get to the conclusions towards the end. But honestly, yeah, just just getting up and moving around from time to time is probably just as good. So, all right, chair. A well, and this is the, this is the thing that that really annoys me is that people say, well, I've got an expensive ergonomic chair, and it's like, well, okay, a well-adjusted cheap chair is better than a badly adjusted expensive chair. So, you know, I just, I shrug my shoulders because people say, I've got an ergonomic chair, therefore I'm fine. And I see some people that just don't adjust, either they don't know how to adjust it properly, properly or the company hasn't taken the time to, like ergonomically, we had an ergonomic specialist working at a company I worked at previously. And within, I think it was the third day that I was working at the company, they would come around to do an ergonomic assessment of your workstation and set everything up properly for you. And um, some people referred to them as the uh, ergonomic Nazi because if they came around and found that you were sitting not ergonomically, there was like a, an invisible strike against you and they would like give you a, a really evil glance as they walk past you on the corridor. But do you have an ergonomic specialist where you work? We don't. I kind of wish we did. But then hearing about you, they're coming by giving dirty looks, they would probably <laughs> grade me very poorly on my posture. I would like to have my things like I, I try to adjust everything, you know, adjust my seat myself. I, I like the chair that I have at work. I picked it out of out of the many different models of chairs that are available over the years in my in my office. I've picked the one that I like the best. I've adjusted it for myself. It's reasonably good. But I sit in it like a lazy bum half the time. My posture is bad. I realize it is. I just get lazy. I mean, I, and I'm not even the worst. Like we, we have in our office a lot of like actual furniture, furniture, and right. everybody has laptops. So a lot of people spend all day, and I don't know how they do this. I guess they're young people sitting on a couch or like in like a, a, a beanbag chair or in a love seat or like actual squishy furniture with their laptop on their lap, which looks comfy, but then it's just like. That's no, not. Yeah, it's not. That's not the best. I don't know. Anyway, I'm I'm in my regular office chair. 
Uh, the, I mean, the, the, for, for chair stuff, the most important thing I think is just height. Uh, yes. Because chair height influences it influences the you know the angle your arms are going to be at and everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they get, you know, if you get just that part right, then worst case you can do. You know, I have a bunch of those big exercise balls too, and we have those things that work as well. Worst case, if it's just the right height. Then just sit up straight. Don't have anything touching your back. Just sit up straight with a good posture at work, and you'll be okay. Like it's just—it's like sitting on a ball. You know, there's nothing on your back. There is no back support. You don't have to worry about if the back part is just right. It's just a flat surface for you to be sitting on. Uh, that's at the right height for you, uh, and that's half the battle. Yeah. So I think we sort of mentioned it, and you just did about the angle of your arms being at 90 degrees, and the angle between your thighs and your back being 90 degrees, wrists held straight and in line with the forearms, and a lot of that comes back to the height of the chair. And um, in terms of distance back from the monitor as well, about 18 to 24 inches um, back from the monitor, and um, you'd think I'd be quoting that in metric, but never mind. Anyway, so... Oh dear, chairs. So as, as you said, at a minimum, absolutely need to be height adjustable. Gas lift is the most common these days. I remember I used to have an old screw lift chair and I used to hate that. You know, the ones underneath where you had to turn the, the, the damn screw thing around a hundred times to get it to yep, move. Yep. Half uh, ugh. Yeah, Gas lift is the nicest because it also has a nice cushioning sort of effect. But the downside is that a lot of people will use a gas lift chair and you find yourself sinking during the day and there's a leak. Yeah, just get it replaced, you know, set it to the right height. It stays at the right height. Everyone's happy. But anyway, um, the lumbar adjustment can help to keep your back straight to prevent that lower back pain and slouching. But it's really there as a preventative measure. As you said, you really shouldn't be touching it, but it's there to stop you from, it's sort of like the warning, you know, whoops, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be slouching like that. So it's handy to have. Uh, I find that having a tilt on the seat can help the angle of your legs sometimes. Uh, because some chairs, it just they, it just seems to be at a funny angle. And I'm not sure how to describe a funny angle. But in order to get that 90 degrees right, I found that the seat tilt, I only adjusted like five or four, let's say plus or minus five degrees from whatever the, the, it come, came as factory default. Factory default? Seat? I guess. I assembled it. Anyway, point is that uh, seat tilt I find also helps. But the funny thing is that for a while there, I was reading a lot of ergonomic studies saying that armrests were helpful ergonomically. And I've done a bit of digging into this, and I've found that's not necessarily the case. Um, not just armrests, but wrist rests. Yes. Remember when people were like, oh, carpal tunnel is a thing. Everybody get these gel wrist rests to sit in front mm. of your keyboard. You should not have your wrist touching anything while you're typing. Exactly. Not a wrist rest, not anything. And armrests, I have the arms. I unscrewed the arms from my chair at work. I don't like armrests at all. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't think you should ever be resting your things it's just more it's just putting more pressure on all the little fleshy things that are going down from yep. from your shoulder to your arm to your wrist mm-hmm. uh, and I don't want any of that being compressed or pressed in any way and sometimes it hinders your motion because you can't have your arms in a natural position so you're trying to avoid the armrests or whatever yep. just no I want them gone every work chair I've ever had I have removed the armrests from yeah, exactly. And I actually, in my early career, I bought into some of that and I remembered saying, oh, we really should have armrests. And then the older I got, the more I realized that they're actually a pain in the neck. And then I read a few studies that armrests don't actually add any value at all ergonomically or an immeasurable amount of value. So I now feel dirty, of course, having like 10 years ago once advocated armrests, but uh, no, no. And, and they can stop you from getting your chair in the right position because mm. depending on where your desk height is, sometimes the armrests bump into the desks or the armrests are above the desks or below a desk or right in the desk and you can't pull in the chair enough or like mm-hmm. sometimes the, the armrests 
bump into the desk until you sit on it and like you press down on the little you know gas thing and then your armrests go underneath and they get caught under the desk they're just they're just in the way of you getting everything in the correct position i don't understand why they're on chairs at all it's, i guess people just feel like they want them but uh they're if if your arms are small enough like they fit inside the armrest then no harm done it's not a big deal you're not resting your arms on them but wrist rests are just the worst because you see them everywhere they take up room and people actually rest their wrists on them and mm-hmm. not only does is resting your wrist bad because you're again you're pressing against your wrist and squishing everything up in there like you do not want the stuff that's in your wrist to be squished up as it slides back and forth while you're doing your typing but resting your wrist there means your arms are not in the right position. I mean, you're tilting your basically tilting your palms out like Iron Man, you know, with a little, you know, that you do not want to put your wrists in any sort of non-neutral position and then wiggle your fingers repeatedly all day. You want your wrists to be as neutral as possible, you know, just kind of like as they would be, just kind of flopping at your side. That is that is perfectly neutral, right? Anything yeah. you do to change that position, including resting your wrists and then your fingers, you know, or keyboards that tilt upwards and then your wrists are in a wrist rest, terrible, bad. Do not put your wrist on a wrist rest. Absolutely right. And just just on a side note, the the suggestion there is that um, Iron Man has the Iron Man suit causes him to have bad posture potentially. Well, like when he does the the little, he's got the things on the palm of his hand. You know, he's like shoot shoot stuff out of them or whatever. He's picking his hand up like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just it's not good. I still want one of those suits though. But anyway, it's it's not repetitive. You just do it a couple times. It's not it's not (laughs) like you're thousands of times a day doing keystrokes while your wrists are in that position. No, that's true. I didn't actually have wrist rests down, but I'm glad you brought that up because that was an oversight on my part. But uh, yeah, I've I've never used... Uh, I, okay, I did retract. I actually did sit at a desk once that had a wrist rest. I used it for about 60 seconds and then I got rid of it because I just... It, you're trying to avoid compression in that area. So why are you compressing yeah. it against it? Please explain. And, and it's putting things in the wrong position. They even have them for the mouse. You ever see those? Like they have yes. like kind of like a, a yeah. crescent shape one that you're mm-hmm. supposed to put like at the bottom yeah. of your mouse pad and then rest your mm-hmm. wrist on that while you wiggle the mouse around. Yeah, not, built not into good. a mouse pad sometimes. The only good thing that one by your mouse might do is avoiding that wrist rest might help you put your wrist in a better position because again, people will use, use a mouse, they'll like lay their arm against the flat of the table and then your hand is lifting up to get to the mouse and then you're moving it around, clicking the button. It's better if you, you know lift your entire arm up off the table so it is floating and then your hand goes down onto the mouse. Oh, yeah, I have my wrist rest so that I can avoid touching it. Uh, that's what someone needs to... <laughs> yeah, they need to rename it. Wrist uh, wrist avoid or I don't know, whatever. <sighs> the worst. Okay, so just to wrap up on arm rests, um, there was a study by Cornell University and it showed that there was no significant improvement to wrist posture as a result of having arm rests on the chair. So... There's a link in the show notes if you want to pour over the findings. It's an actual genuine study where they actually did try to study it impartially. So there you go. Okay. Trackpad versus mouse. Now you love trackpads, is that is that correct? I do not. I hate trackpads. <laughs> I'm winding you up. I'm sorry. I knew you didn't like them. That's very mean of me. I'm sorry. But um how about you start by telling me why you don't like trackpads? It doesn't have anything to do with ergonomics. I'm I, I'm yeah, not I sure how where where the ergonomics fall down on trackpads. It's just because I it, I'm so much less efficient. I, f- I feel like it is it is an impairment for me to have to use a trackpad uh, than to use a mouse because uh, maybe it's because I'm more experienced with the mouse. But I just think the mouse is more is a better proxy for pointing to something on the screen with my finger than the trackpad is. Because in the trackpad, it's more like me shoving around a rock in a little Japanese garden full of sand, right? You know. <laughs> 
push, Zen push gun. over there. Or like the cursor is this thing. And as I swipe my little finger around and every once in a while, as I'm moving it on the trackpad, it's kind of connected to the cursor, but then you got to pick up and then I, I don't know if it's the acceleration curve or the, 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 the fewer muscle groups that are involved in me just moving my finger around a few square inch area. Whereas when I use the mouse, I've got my, my arm, my shoulder, my wrist, my fingers, every part of that entire system depending on what kind of move I'm making fast, short, and, you know, in combinations, like throwing a baseball, every part of your arm, shoulder, elbow, wrist, fingers are all involved at different points to get that one big motion to get the ball going fast. And when I flick the mouse to, to the corner of the screen, maybe I'm using my whole arm, maybe I'm I'm just using my fingers, maybe I'm using the, my palm as leverage and flicking with my fingertips. Again, nothing to do with ergonomics, just to do with, like, efficiency. Um all those things that I do with the mouse are probably terribly <laughs> terrible for me ergonomically, but they're incredibly efficient. And, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's what I'm used to. And the trackpad, I just, well, I feel like I'm less efficient. And because I'm less efficient, I feel like I get, I get stressed. Like, you know, mm. it, like it's, stress hormones are released because I can't, like, I got to go over to get that. Like m- my wrists start to hurt in sympathy when I think about having to use a laptop just, you know, with the trackpad in front of me just to go type, 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 then go over, swipe, swipe. And then having to like hold down the trackpad with like my mm. thumb, you know, now that it's all one button, but either way, I hold it down and then swipe with the other finger. That just the tension of that is yeah. so much greater than the tension of me just having a mouse holding down a button, you know, just to drag a window from one place to the other. Yeah. Doing well, that I'll... with the trackpad feels worse to me. I don't know if I'm mm. using the trackpad wrong or the, the stress about it is just because I'm less efficient. I'm getting frustrated that I'm not able to do things as fast as I can think of them. Mm. Uh, but no, trackpads do not work for me on many levels. Okay. Well, just on a couple of those points there that you made, I I agree with some of what you said because pressing down and the problem is it's you know it's it's a turning moment affects the amount of force that you have to apply. So the further away your finger is, or rather, hang on, me turn the other way around because the actuation point is at the furthest furthest extremity from the pivot point, and the pivot point being the uh, the edge of the trackpad that's furthest away from you. Uh, it's much, much easier in terms of the amount of force required to push down uh, the actuators uh, at the end that's closest to you on the trackpad. And that's, you know, like, okay, I get that, fine. But the problem is that that means that if I want to use the minimum amount of energy to push down the trackpad, I have to then draw my fingers down to the edge of the trackpad that's closest to me before I click them, which means I have to ex- expend more energy in moving my fingers down to that point before I can actually click. Whereas on a mouse, my finger's always on the trigger finger. And it requires the same amount of force, irrespective of the position of the finger on the mouse uh, mouse button, pretty much. So, and also you have to spread your if you want to go to that bottom edge of the trackpad. Which mm. now, when the trackpad's all one button, it's like you said, but it used to actually be an actual button that was down there. Yes. If your finger happens to be at the top, now the distance between your thumb and whatever point your finger using is increased, and now mm-hmm. you're trying to hold down way over there, but then also precisely move your finger way up there. And so again, it's opening opening your hand up into a non-neutral, unnatural position, and trying to do precise movements with mm. your arm, with your fingers extended in that way. Yeah, exactly right, and I and I guess I never got the hang of using my thumb as the on the um, on the button. I, I just I just didn't because I didn't start using trackpads seriously until um, the multi-touch trackpads, which didn't have the button at the bottom. So yeah, yeah. But the other thing that's that I do to overcome these problems is I I use tap to click. I turn on I go into the system preferences and yeah. I turn on tap was, to click. I was gonna say yeah, like the, ta- the what the alternative, the lower impact alternative for trackpads is tap to click, where everything get softer uh and you know sort of you don't have to do it you don't have to use as much muscle force to do things 
But what you're trading is now you have to be super careful because now it's like mm -hmm. any kind of, uh, you know, missed, you know, a finger that happens to drop down or move. Like you, you can accidentally click things to accidentally do stuff. And I find that maddening. If I ever accidentally, a finger lands on the, on the thing and interpreted it as a click and it happened to hit a button and it dismissed something that I didn't even see what text was on it or I accidentally <laughs> deleted yeah. something like yeah. I again with the with you know the the stress and stress mental stress is actually a huge part of RSI that books talk about in vague ways but I found that is you know it it it's there's a big connection to me how sort of worked up you are about anything doesn't matter what it is that affects how tense your body is and you know like just stress hormones and inflammation are all you know connected into one big long thing so if you are worried that you're going to accidentally graze your finger on, on the trackpad and inadvertently click something you didn't want to click all of a sudden everything gets a little not much more tense but just a little bit more tense and that builds up over time and so you're always looking for is just relax comfort you're not pressing the keys hard you're not doing anything furiously typing or mouse or anything like that and for me i'm just not comfortable with tap to click uh even though i know it would be a lower impact way for me to use trackpad so i just i just avoid them entirely yeah it, do, it certainly does in, in, increase the amount of um, accidental clicking. And no, I'm not going to sing anything to do with accidental anything. Anyhow, okay. Um, the other thing that is also is that you mentioned the the click and drag. Uh, you can also enable the three the three fingers to to drag, yep. which I which I do regularly. But I think a lot of it comes back down to you know on that accidental thing is it comes back to precision and. I find that the mouse, the mouse is much better for precision pointing and precision clicking, and there's a lot less accidental clicking going on. And that's, you know, I suppose it sounds like essentially the majority of your argument, and and I can't disagree with that. But the problem that I've got, sorry, don't want to put words in your mouth. Some people, I was gonna say, some people like this is just me. Some people who've been brought up with trackpads just find the mouse weird and prefer the trackpad massively like they've only ever really used laptops they grew up with laptops mm. a mouse seems like an anachronism to them uh and that's what they like they are more relaxed with the trackpads and you know like I, I i think for those people maybe they're just chill about you know doing doing the gestures second nature to them to do you know the the sort of drag lock behavior where you're like all right now i'm dragging and now they can drag without having to hold down with a finger and they're they're okay with accidental clicks or they're better at not triggering them or whatever so i i i think that i can't really tell i still say that i could if we did like a you know sort of a test where you had to click on squares as they appeared on the screen or some 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 kind of laboratory test for like accuracy and speed i still feel like mousing would be the trackpad people but yeah. in the end what matters is what you feel comfortable with and so i see a lot of people especially younger computer users who are very very comfortable with trackpads and just terrible with the mouse. And for them, the trackpad actually is the right answer. Well, you wait till the uh, the iPad generation or tablet generation, I should say, to be non um, non brand specific. But the tablet generation, they look at the the trackpad and the mouse as being ridiculous. Because I mean, it's like what you're you're indirectly moving a pointer on a screen. What, why wouldn't why wouldn't you just touch it? But they and, can and never I, hit those window widgets with their fat fingers. <laughs> that's an operating system design flaw, not a... Anyway. <laughs> it's a different, different operating system. I know. They said window widgets. We don't have window widgets. We don't even have windows. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, if those people are going to become programmers, guess what? There's a trackpad or a trackball or a mouse in their future. Because just, for now, there is. For now, yep. But uh, if they're alive today, I think it's probably in their future.
No, that's fair enough, I suppose. But okay, we've a bit of an aside there, but still an interesting discussion. The, the bottom line, though, so far as ergonomically goes, I did come across this German study in the mid '90s that concluded that trackpads versus mice, and they concluded that trackpads were marginally better ergonomically. But I couldn't find anything more recent, and that would have been back before multi-touch trackpads and gestures and all that other stuff. So I, you know, and if it was that close, they're saying it's marginally better, then it's really not that much better. So. Um, honestly, my feelings as far as RSI goes is that incorrect use of a trackpad and incorrect use of a mouse can just as easily give you RSI. None is really seems to be any better than the other. Switching between them could actually reduce your overall risk because they'll generate subtly different strains from different usage yep. patterns of different devices. So, uh, and this is the the thing is I find that precision pointing in and clicking is easier with a mouse. So there are certain activities I do with a mouse and other ones I do with uh, a trackpad because the trackpad I find easier for switching windows and, um, you know, uh, you know, just just being able to bring up uh, Launchpad or you know App Switcher or whatever. You know, I just I prefer to use, or switching desktops, um, desktops and so on. So switching between desktops. And, so in that uh, in that German study, where were the trackpads? Because the trackpad itself as a concept is one thing, but mm. what I'm thinking of when I think of trackpad is a thing that is centered under the keyboard, kind of towards your belly button when mm. you're using a laptop. Yeah, and I that think that's is what it was. perhaps the worst position for a trackpad to be in because it is not natural for you to have your hands sort of closer to your body and have them tilted inward so they're right in the middle. Like you'd want the trackpad to be kind of where the mouse is, arms at right angle, straight ahead. Your hand should fall on the trackpad. But in practice, mm. most people who are using trackpads are using them centered underneath their space bar, which is a very awkward position yeah, and makes right. everything different about about you know mousing. You know, swiping around with their fingers on the trackpad i i i would i do have a magic trackpad actually i don't use it i, just, I bought it for an os 10 review way back when but i mean who if you gave them a magic trackpad would choose to put it underneath their spacebar right in front of them no one would you always <laughs> no put it off to where the mouse is right so it's yep. laptops that's... are necessary necessarily an ergonomic compromise for a portability and yet yep. that's what most people use and that's what most people buy is laptops yeah, but the other thing that I find um, odd, and, I, and you're right, actually, it is it is a, a bad spot for it, is that some of the, uh, I think it's HP, have theirs off-center. And I look at that, and that's even more bizarre to my eyes. Because, I mean, that doesn't that then therefore suggest that your user is uh, right-handed rather than left-handed because they usually yeah, well, offset you, to the right? You can never get it to the right spot because, like, no. if it has to fit on a laptop, it's always, it's going to be, it's going to mm. be, like, it's, you know... Given the shape of a laptop, yes, the keyboard should be up there and the trackpad should be down there. Like the, the power book arrangement mm. is the best you can do with a laptop. But if you're going to put the trackpad somewhere and the laptop isn't in the question, you're not going to put it anywhere underneath the keyboard. You're always going to put it to the right or the left of the keyboard, but you can't do that in a laptop. You don't have anything to the right or the left of the keyboard. It's empty space. The laptop ends there. So they, they do the best they can. And the offset ones is like, you know, well, we'll... Most people are right-handed. Maybe they sell left-handed models. Who knows? But that's such a minor difference. Like you're ne even if you put it in the far right side of the laptop, it's still in a bad place. Yeah, exactly right. Do you remember those uh, laptops uh, in the '90s that had a trackball yep. and it was um, you could click it onto the side of the yep. laptop? And yeah, you remember those? Because they because those were like computers designed before they thought point using a pointing device was something that was important to do. And they're like, mm. oh well, it seems like people actually do want to use these, you know, Windows or whatever with a pointing device. But our current laptop designs have no accommodation for it. I know. We'll get <laughs> we'll this, se on, this yeah. semicircle-shaped thing and we'll click it onto the side. And ergonomically, it was like, you know, it was like a trackball. Yes. At least that was off to the right and you could kind of use your thumb on it or whatever. But it was obviously, 
It was tacked on like the analog sticks were tacked onto the PlayStation controller. Was, <laughs> uh, only the only difference is that PC laptops uh, very quickly learned to copy the market leader Apple and yes. put their trackpads a implement trackpads and b put them below the keyboard. Mm. Whereas the PlayStation didn't learn that lesson. But anyway, different show. Yeah, I was going to say I'm not going to let you turn this into a gaming thing. Maybe another time, not this time. <laughs> okay, so all right. Um, so just to let you know what I do is I actually cheat and rather you could argue that this is a sign that I'm neither bought into either alternative or either option, but I don't care. I have a mouse and a trackpad and they're sitting right next to each other and I use one for one th some things and one for the for other things. So there you go. Um, I have my magic trackpad uh, right next to my, uh, my Logitech dark light, which sounds really sinister, but it's not. Um, what do they call it? A uh, dark field. Hmm. Anyway, whatever. Okay. I did use a magic mouse for a while um, and I really am considering a ceremonial burning ceremony for it because my hand hurts so badly after using it for a few weeks. I just had to stop using a mouse altogether for a whole week to recover. It was that bad. So are you a fan of the magic mouse? I don't think I've ever used one like... I've never, I've never used one as my main computer thing. Whenever I've seen it in the store, it looks like a beautiful piece of sculpture, but it's way too low and too, yep. way too low for me to use, and it also seems like it's too heavy. Mm. And so I've never even seriously considered using one for anything other than like display purposes. I do like the gestures on the top. I do like the idea of kind of a combination of you know you've got a little because I do like gestures, mm -hmm. but I, I can't use that. It's it's just too low. Beautiful piece of art, not a great mouse. Yeah, exactly. No, totally agree on that. Okay, so. When I did have my issues with RSI about a year ago, uh, I switched uh, temporarily to an Evolent. I think it is Evolent. I don't know how to pronounce that anyway. Vertical Mouse 4, the Bluetooth model. There's a link in the show notes. And the link in the show notes is to the US Apple store, Apple online store. And there was a comment from someone, uh, Stelios M from Lincroft. Anyway, and they had exactly the same problem that I did, the Bluetooth side of it. It kept disconnecting. It stuttered when it was going across, the mouse was going across the screen. You'd need to bump it to wake it up enough for it to work. It would sleep like really quickly. So maybe if the wire, there is a wired model, maybe if I'd chosen the wired model, that would have worked out better for me. But I actually stopped using it mainly for that. And by which time I switched jobs, I had an adjustable high desk and my RSI went away after I got the correct high desk and correct high chair anyway. So I stopped using that mouse, but in any case. Uh, and you already told me that you still use your you use stock standard stuff. What sort of a mouse do you use? Did you say I'm sorry? I've, I've just got a, an old Logitech. I don't know what model this is, but it's really old. Two buttons, scroll wheel. That's it. Okay. It's much higher than than most Apple mice. You know, it's like Logitech mice. They usually like large and kind of fill your palm up. Uh, it's not one of the ones that's gigantic and shaped like a snail. It's mm. more of kind of symmetrical type one. But I bought a couple of these mice, one for home and one for work. God, must be 10 years ago or something. They're wired mouse, they're they're yep. optical, uh, mm -hmm. but they're nothing fancy and they just continue to work. When they break, I don't know what I'll buy because every time I look at uh, current mice, I can't use any of the Apple ones because I don't like them. Mm -hmm. uh, and the the Logitech ones, like my main problem with them is they seem to have just, they're just bristling with buttons. They have buttons everywhere. There's buttons by your thumb, buttons by in between the, the two main buttons. There's buttons. I, I just want like scroll wheel, you know, middle click the scroll wheel and like I do not need all these side buttons for navigation and back or whatever. I would just want to disable those and they would just, I don't even want them to be there. So, I, you know, I, I suppose I'll find one. Yeah, I did the same thing. I've, this, this mouse button, this mouse I've got here has buttons on the side. I disable them because 
I'll accidentally bump them and I flick between uh, workspaces or something or spaces, whatever. And I'm like, I didn't mean to do that. What did, What are you doing? You know, I, I'm, I was squeezing my mouse. You're changing my screen on me. So yeah, I find them to be more of a pain than a help. But in any case, they were trying to help us, but just didn't work out. Anyway, um, so just quickly on trackballs. And uh, a lot of people swear by trackballs because they can find movement to almost entirely the thumb and they keep the arm at a safer angle because it's fixed and doesn't require moving around. Uh, and that's probably good. It's good in terms of less pressure on ligaments. But yeah, the truth is that it's really a different set of muscles that you're using when you're just moving your thumb around than you are when you're moving a mouse. So what you're really doing is if you've developed RSI as a result of using a standard mouse badly over a long period of time, then switching to a trackball will alleviate that, but that won't stop you from developing RSI as a result of, you know, using it too much of a trackball too much. Yeah, I think you're you're limiting the number the number of muscle groups that go into using a trackball. It's got to be much smaller than the number of muscle groups that could go into using a mouse. Like, mm. so you, there's nothing you can really change up on the trackball. It is where it is. You could put it in a good position, but then, like, you're not going to be using your elbows, and it's not like you're going to be using it like you use the the trackball like a centipede game where you just you know <laughs> or like golden tea or whatever. Like, it is not a whole body experience. It's all confined to just your fingers and that's what people like about it i've always found them i've always found that i'm not very accurate those do you remember the old mac trackpads from kensington with the four buttons yep. on them in the mm -hmm. corners i just those that just feels like trying to use a cursor while you know walking on ice skating rink it always felt too slippery to me i didn't feel precise yep. Yep. uh and it was just all in the fingers and maybe a little bit of the wrist and i just it, it you know i would not i've never used that long enough to to get rsi from it but i would I prefer uh, something that lets me change things up, change yeah. how I'm using it more. Even a trackpad gives you more freedom than that because you could start moving, you know, keep your hand relatively still and move your, your shoulder and your elbow to move your fingers around or you could just move your fingertips or whatever. But the trackpad is, or the, the trackball is very limiting. Mm. Excellent. Absolutely. Did you ever come across one of those or try one of those uh, things? Uh, Toshiba called them an AccuPoint. It's like a little little rubber knob in the middle of the keyboard that you sort of like you can push and you apply yep. pressure on. Yeah, you try one of those? Uh, yeah, IBM had them on the ThinkPads for a long time. Yeah, that's it. They're not as bad as the, like they work surprisingly well. They they have this, the similar problem to the trackball and that it, it feels like you're driving the cursor around the screen like it's a little car. It doesn't feel like an extension of your arm and you're grabbing stuff. So it's it's kind of like using a joystick to vector the, the cursor around. Uh, Again, it's it's a tiny little thing. It's only in one place. There is a limited number of muscle groups that you can contribute to to making that move. It's basically you're just going to be putting one or two fingers on it and applying pressure in different directions. It's good because there's not a lot of motion. Uh, I get, I've also never haven't used one long enough to to you know get RSI from it, hmm. but it seems like it would be working a very small number of muscles tendons and nerves to get the job done because it is super limited but it has the advantage of not taking a lot of pressure and not having like it is in the center of your keyboard so it's kind of an awkward position but you have a lot of freedom with how you sort of meet up with the little nub yeah. you know what i mean and then all you have to do is meet up with it you don't have to manipulate it it's simply applying pressure so ergonomically i think that probably be pretty good depending on how you end up turning your hand over to to use it i mean no one has made like an external nub where like you'd put it to the right put it to the right <laughs> of your keyboard in a better position or whatever yeah but, and what does that tell you 
Yeah, uh, I mean, it, that would just seem silly, I guess, but it's kind of like your vertical mouse. You know what I mean? If you can imagine, yeah. imagine your vertical mouse was securely mounted somewhere and it was like an, uh, you know, an F-16 uh, flight stick. I think that's the one that like bare, doesn't yeah. actually move, but it's just pressure applied to it, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, you know, the, you could have a vertical mouse that didn't move that you just applied pressure to that would work kind of like a trackpad. And it would feel like you're driving the cursor around, which would be a little bit weird, uh, but it might be ergonomically pretty good. Hmm. I personally can't wait for the uh, neural interface. We know those experiments where they uh, put a cap on your head and you can sort of like learn how to move the mouse around by looking and thinking in your brain. That'd be, that would be awesome. I wonder how far off that is. Not anyway. in our lifetime, seems like. Oh, don't say that. I really hope it happens in our lifetime. But anyway, all right. I uh, just want to take a moment to talk about our second sponsor for this episode, and that's uh, lynda.com. Now, lynda.com is an easy and affordable way to learn. You can instantly stream thousands of courses created by experts in their fields of business, software, web development, graphic design, audio, and lots and lots more. Too many to list here. They have an enormous library of titles to choose from, with new courses added every day to make sure their library is both relevant and up-to-date. They work directly with experts from many different industries and software development companies to provide timely training. Often the exact same day the newest release becomes available, so you know that you've got the latest information the moment when you're most likely to need it. These are nothing at all like the homemade tutorial videos you might find on YouTube that might tell you a little snippet, unindexed, buried somewhere deep inside them, which is what you really want to know. Well, lynda.com make high quality, easy to follow, and well indexed, and that to me is really important, the video tutorials with full transcripts broken down into easily searchable sections. Now, the bite-sized piece approach makes it really easy to stop and pick up wherever you left off, whenever you need to, so you can learn at your own pace, in your own way, and in your own time. Whether you're a complete beginner with no knowledge at all about a subject, or you've been a moderate to an advanced user looking to brush up on some of the features in the latest version, uh, lynda.com has courses that span that entire range of experience. You can learn on the go as well, since lynda.com has iPhone, iPad, and Android apps, and they also support playlists. They provide certificates as evidence when you complete your courses. And if you are on LinkedIn, you can publish them directly to your LinkedIn profile. Yes, I have a LinkedIn profile. The Essentials Training for Logic, for example, is what I've been looking through. It's 7 hours and 20 minutes of video with a full transcript. It's broken down into sections I need so I can pick and choose the bits that matter the most for podcasting. Uh, bouncing down your, miss, your mix, for example, is one that I covered very early on. But you can pick and choose. You don't have to watch it in, in order if you don't want to. You can just pick out the bits you want to have a look at. And there's so much good stuff in there to list. And that's just one piece of software. And there's thousands more. So what's it worth? Well, for one low monthly price of $25, you get a completely unlimited access to over 100,000 video tutorials in the lynda.com library. However, premium members with an annual plan can download courses to their iPhone, iPads, Android devices and watch them offline. Premium plan members can also download project files and practice along with the instructor. Maybe you're just getting into pages, numbers, and Keynote now that they sync up nicely, and I say nicely, relatively nicely, uh, between the, the Mac, iPad, and iPhone. But Maybe just scratching the surface of what's possible. Well, lynda.com has training for all of those apps and their latest versions. If you're into Office 365, let's say, same deal for Word, Excel, PowerPoint. And it's all in there and there's lots more. So I've been talking with lynda.com for a while now and have enjoyed their content on and off for years. And I'm happy to be able to provide pragmatic listeners with a special offer to access all of their courses for free for 10 days. Visit lynda.com slash pragmatic to try lynda.com for 10 days. That's lynda.com slash pragmatic. Thanks once again to lynda.com for sponsoring the show. So quickly, I want to talk about typing technique. We already talked a little bit about this before, but 
And studies on this are all over the place. But it's generally accepted that a good typing technique will reduce RSI. But unfortunately, whether it's a useful or measurable improvement is difficult to say because it's so difficult to quantitatively measure it. You know, fingers crossing, inefficient key selection, etc. It's very difficult to devise a test that actually accurately connects that uh, with with RSI because typically the people that learn to type as fast as possible, uh, people that are typing at very high rates are exposed because they're typing so much more frequently. It's like one exacerbates the other. So it's hard to separate those two, I think. And that's probably why there are so few studies that genuinely try and quantify that. Unless you're aware of any, I, I didn't come across any. No, I've just had my own theories about that. Like I've, I've always thought that Using fewer fingers seems worse because you're concentrating all your motion into a smaller number of fingers. But mm -hmm. on the other hand, using fingers like your pinky that are sort of have smaller and weaker parts, they're not as sturdy as your bigger fingers. And they're often asked to do the most awkward moves to sort of, you know, go for a modifier while hitting a key with the other thing or whatever. And that's bad. Like people use e or Emacs users and are constantly going for the control key in the corner, which is why so many people remap control to a uh, caps lock or whatever. So I I don't know either. I would love to see some because I don't know how those two those two balance out with each other. Is it is it better to use all your fingers evenly and spread the wear, or is it worse because you end up like because your smaller weaker fingers end up getting uh, are are more susceptible to injury than your bigger ones? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. And and, and I'm just trying to think about how you would devise a test to actually determine that. Um, that had any kind of statistical significance. Um, I can't think but, of an ethical one. I can think of ways to do it. Not. You could just for teach a bunch of people to type with the varying numbers of fingers, and then you know, just you do that enough, then you're you're sort of intentionally injuring half of your group there because you're teaching them to do something the wrong way. But you don't know which half, so maybe it is ethical. I don't know. I'm not a scientist. Uh, type up your type up your uh, index finger and your um, <laughs> type together two fingers and see how far you can, how fast you can go. Oh God. Yes. Anyway. All right. Keyboards, got to talk about keyboards. Uh, and uh, essentially, I, I went down this road and I, I found things that uh, were not what I expected. So I always love it when I'm doing research for this and I discover things I didn't expect that were not intuitive. So, okay, two measurements, actuation force for keys and actuation distance. So um, just a little quickly about some of the different actuators real quick. Maybe I'll do an episode on keyboards at some point. I don't know if anyone really cares, but never mind. Uh, Cherry Corporation in Germany, they make a lot of the mechanical keyboard switches that everyone, when I say everyone, uh, lots of hardcore programmers love their mechanical switches. And anyway, uh, they range in force between 45 grams to 60 grams of actuation um, and actuation force and distance of travels around about two millimeters for your initial sensing distance and four millimeters before you bottom out. The traditional, and I say traditional, IBM Model M keyboard, if you consider that traditional, but it's been around a long time. Or well, anyway, uh, uses a buckling spring, which is a very unique sound, and it sounds, it is exactly what it sounds like. You push down the spring, it compresses. Eventually, uh, the uh, spring buckles, and that's what causes a little little latch to to flick down and actuate the key. Uh, it's a very, yeah, a very unique sound. Don't really like them, to be honest. Anyway, 65 grams of force and the actuation distance varies between 2.3 to 3.7 millimeters. Um, Alps or Mitsumi mechanical switches were used in the Apple Extended 2 keyboard. Actually, you um, you mentioned, I think, that you used an Apple Extended 2 for a while. Yep, that was my, from the time of my SE30 up until, I guess, uh, the time of, oh, it's got to be like, maybe 1999 so SC30 mm. until 1999 it was no even longer than that when did I switch to USB uh maybe on 
the blue and white G3, maybe. Okay. No, no, I still use it, but that was not an ADB port. As soon as they got rid of the ADB port, that's when I finally got rid of the Apple Extended 2. Well, you could have bought an, AD, an ADB to USB converter. That's what yeah, John, no, John but, Gruber but does. But I didn't. Yeah, no, so that, I guess that means that the dual, the Power Mac G5, that's when I stopped using the Apple Extended uh, 2. Okay, cool. Fair enough. Well, fair enough. The travel distance of those uh, is about three and a half millimeters uh, for the Alps Alps models because they made those out of two different manufacturers and they were slightly different between them. And uh, I couldn't find any information on the Mitsumi key switches. So if you've got that, I'd be curious, uh, uh, anyone who's listening. But anyway, uh, so scissor switch over a rubber dome, also referred to as a pantograph switch. Uh, and that's the type that's used in the Apple aluminum keyboards or aluminum keyboards, if you prefer. Uh, 65 grams of actuation force, so pretty pretty standard. But the the big one is the one to two millimeters of actuation distance. So it's you know it's less. So the scissor switch uh, keyboards have the balance of that tactile tactile sort of feeling, uh, but they come along with that low travel. And you know some some of the keyboards you know have much lower actuation force as well. But it depends on the model. The Apple model, um, you know, not so much. Much pretty much the same as most mechanical switches and. Uh, even the old buckling spring. So anyway, the lower travel uh, leads to a lot of people who've learned on older keyboards to bottom out regularly. And I suffer from this, unfortunately. <laughs> I try not to, but I can't help bottoming out on these keys all the time. So do you, do you find that's a problem for you? So that's the reason I switched from the Apple Extended 2, which is I still like better. That's still my favorite keyboard. I would still be using it today. But uh, what I found would happen with them is that I would, I would end up typing harder, like pressing more. Uh, you know, partly because I felt like I needed to press more to, you know, to make the clicking partly because you just need to, there's more pressing that needs to be done for the, for the long travel on the keys. But, you know, sort of you find yourself again, typing furiously because you've had a brainstorm about something or because you're under pressure to do something or whatever. That is the worst thing ever. Just, just the worst. Uh, and when the aluminum Apple keyboards came out, I, I immediately liked them because the, the, I felt like it, I, they force me to type more gently, right? Because like the yeah. bottoming out type thing, if I feel myself doing that, it's like, you're typing too hard now. Mm-hmm. Whereas I didn't get that sensation with the Apple Extended 2, because it was all that bang, bang, bang. And it was also super loud. I'm going to drive my wife crazy. Yeah. Um, and so the aluminum keyboards, uh, they're also very flat, which is another big thing. A keyboard should not be tilted. The, the keys that are farther away from you should not be higher than the keys that are closer to you. If anything, you might want to have a negative tilt where it goes down, but at the very least you want it to be flat. So the aluminum keyboards... They are slightly tilted, but barely compared to the huge wedge that is the Apple Extended 2. So these things are flat, and they take very... I, I, I type on them more gently. And if I'm not typing gently enough, I feel it, and I say, you should be typing more gently now. And so that's what I've stuck with since then, is just the Apple Extended Aluminum Keyboard, because it's my gentle typing keyboard. And the less the less I press on the keys, the more gentle I am with them, the better it feels on my wrist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... Exactly. It, it gives you the ability to correct yourself if you're if you're hitting them too hard. And I, I find that when I'm in a hurry, I tend to I hit the keys a bit harder, and I'm I'm always sort of shaking my head at myself. And uh, I know I should be typing more softly. But the thing is, I I typed a lot on a typewriter in the early days, so I used to be even worse. But I've gotten better with age, I think. Well, I like to think so. But anyway. Uh, and you brought up noise, and that's another thing. Is some people swear by the mechanical keyboards, but they are almost always a noisier almost there's some models that are quieter but depending on the, the different kind of switch but generally mechanical keyboards are louder and in an office open office environment uh, i remember i had um uh, the last company oh my god two companies ago oh, time flies 
Um, I don't actually change companies that regularly. It may sound like I do, but I don't. But anyway, and um, he was a big fan of his mechanical keyboard and he was probably about seven or eight seats away and you could always hear when he was typing from that far away. It's, a, it's just... Now imagine every single keyboard in the entire office is one of these louder keyboards. Uh, makes me think of the old typing rooms back in uh, the Yeah, it sounds like the, the newsroom in the old movies. Was yeah. Like, that was the background noise they were putting there because everyone would be typing away on their mechanical uh, keyboards. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, but never mind. Okay. So uh, I did t- talk briefly. I, d- I used to have a Microsoft, uh, Microsoft ergonomic uh, keyboard. I also call them Microsoft, Microsoftic. That was interesting. Anyway, and uh, I used to get annoyed by the sticks being on the wrong side, but uh, I eventually stopped using it because it got water damage. I didn't, I didn't really think it was that great a keyboard, to be honest. And I used it way before I had RSI. I used it because um, my mother had bought it on because she had been um, suffering from a bit of RSI. She had a job which involved a lot of typing and she got it and then she didn't want it anymore when she stopped working there and you know, there's no point for her to practice her typing anymore. So it's one of those things I find is a bit of a trap to assume that if you just use an ergonomic mouse or an ergonomic keyboard, um, that'll stop you from developing RSI. And that's really not true. And you know, the, the tent angle on these ergonomic keyboards and all these different little, they, they'll, they'll tell you that the ergonomic keyboards are so amazing and everything. But my experience is that they weren't. And I didn't find, there's no objective studies that I could find. All the studies you'll find are the, you know, the typical manufacturer blurb. You know, it's like, this keyboard is guaranteed to, you know, I don't know, save your wrist from dropping off or something insane. It's like, well, of course you'd say that. It's your keyboard. You know, I don't trust that that is an objective test. And so I'm not going to quote any. I haven't linked to any. And I honestly have my doubts. I think that the force of which you type and how many breaks you take is far, and the adjustment of your, your, your seat is far more of an influence on whether you have an ergonomic keyboard or an ergonomic mouse. Yeah, but all other things being equal, the ergonomic keyboard's do put your wrist in a slightly more neutral position. And the biggest yeah. thing I think ergonomic keyboards do for people who are having problems and they're using a standing keyboard is it simply changes their environment. If someone was using an ergonomic keyboard and started to get RSI, changing them to a non-ergonomic one might briefly help. But it does what it's trying to get like if you think about your hands, they're coming from they're coming from a width that's wider than a keyboard because most people's shoulders are wider than than the home keys, right? So you're coming in on an angle and then your hands are, you know, you're making like a triangle with your hands. But then you straighten your wrists so your wrists are facing forward. So now you're bending your, you're bending the tendons in your wrists at a different angle. And then you're putting them down. The ergonomic keyboard is like, all right, let's relax that a little bit. Let's let them be on a little bit more of an angle. Let's let you not turn them over as much so your palms are facing straight down. And and the corrections to those angles are so slight. It's slightly, it's not exactly parallel anymore. Now there's a little bit tilted. And how far tilted up are there? Not very high. They're tilted up just a tiny little bit. And sometimes that's all it takes to alleviate it, uh, the, the, the problems that people are having if they have very minor problems. But like you said, there's so many other things that could be going wrong. If you have an urban keyboard and you put it on your desk and it's way too high, uh, this there you have much bigger problems and and the thing is people get an ergonomic keyboard and they say i was having problems i got an ergonomic keyboard never had a problem again that could be true for them because their threshold for injury may have they may have just been crossing over and just making this minor adjustment while keeping all their other bad habits was enough to put them in that threshold you know again with the motion sickness where like i'm fine on planes i'm fine on cars uh i'm not fine on on crab boats right and it's like well just don't go on crab boats and you'll be fine Right, or go on crab boats on calm days and you're fine, right? And so they found sort of their medium, or at least for now, until they, they maybe get older or whatever. But uh, yeah. the, the, the main barrier for the, the ergonomic keyboards, though, is can you still type on them? And the answer for me, unfortunately, is so far no. Exactly. Keyboard layouts, just quickly. Now, I, again, 
read a whole bunch of different things saying that Dvorak was better than QWERTY. And in terms of uh, efficiency and in terms of, uh, therefore, the, the, the logical supposition that, well, sorry, it's a local, it's a, it's, it's an incorrect uh, conclusion to draw from the facts, uh, whether you can call them facts, is that it's therefore better for RSI. The, the, the old story goes, and just to perpetuate the old story, uh, that QWERTY layouts were favoured by typewriter manufacturers. Uh, I think it was Remington, actually. And it was designed to overcome the tendency of fast typists by pressing common letter combinations close together such that the hammers jammed. But the other theory of that was that Remington tried to lock in users that were trained to use theirs by their, their keyboards on their typewriters because, you know, that by using a unique keyboard layout. And, of course, it stuck. Didn't stop other manufacturers from copying it. Now, honestly, I don't know if either of those is actually what's happened or if that's actually true. There's so much out there about this to and fro, I just don't know what to think. So what is undeniable, though, is that the QWERTY layout was never developed with speed or ergonomics balanced or tested with any kind of rigor whatsoever. It just wasn't. Or if it was, they kept it to themselves. But the funny thing about the Dvorak layout was that Dvor the um, Dr. August Dvorak who may or may not have been born in August, in 1936 published the simplified Dvorak keyboard uh, layout, claiming vast improvements in speed and reduced fatigue. But the original study was cited by the US Navy and that sort of you know pushed Dvorak during World War II. But when I went digging for this thing, turns out no one can seem to find it, which is a bit of a worry. Uh, and there was an interesting study in 1953 by the Australian Post Office that found the Dvorak keyboard, if you look at the results carefully, was of marginal benefit at best. So I guess to me what makes sense is you're not reducing the total number of finger flexes, if you want to call them that, to type a word. You're just marginally reducing the lateral finger movements. And that may not actually play as big a role in RSI as was previously kind of thought. At least that's my take. Have you come across, uh, have you been uh, looked at this? I know a lot of people who do use Dvorak, and it's kind of, yeah, it's mostly like, I've heard that it's more efficient, I'm interested in efficiency, let me try doing that, and, you know, the, it does, you know, if you're writing English words, it lets you keep your fingers more on the home keys, because there's more useful things near there, and keeps the common characters easier, it makes them less of a stretch, but, like you said, you know, the, the, the absolute number of keystrokes is the same, uh, mm. if you're typing the same thing. Uh, and the the curse of increased efficiency is people don't just take that and continue to, at the same typing speed. If you are gaining any efficiency from, say, not having to take your finger off the home row for words when you used to have to take them off, all you're going to do is most people are just going to trade that efficiency for typing speed, right? So now you're That's typing right. faster than you were before. So mm -hmm. you're not really controlling all the variables. If you're saying like, well, we, we tried this and we tried that and marginal benefit, it, you know, like it could be that the Dvorak people are... Because, you know, it takes less muscle effort for them to type and they just simply type faster then or yep. they or, or they type in quicker bursts and really their their total typing speed is the same, but they have longer pauses between words and individual words come out faster because they just feel so much more efficient. I mean, humans are weird. Like, we'll just you, you will you may think the only difference is we just change the keyboard layout, but your habits will change based on the layout. And then, of course, most people learn on QWERTY and then you, they secondarily learn Dvorak, so who knows if it will ever be as comfortable for them as their you know, the thing they learned on. And so these type of tests are so hard to to do, uh, especially if the if the expected difference is going to be small, that you're just never able to control for everything 
to to a degree where like you're you're not going to get some kind of slam dunk result where you're like wow that that is a huge change and it's noticeable and we don't even have to control for that much you can just see it's it's just a question of how big the difference is so mm-hmm. i i'm not i'm not convinced that it's that much of a win but i could be convinced that like if you could snap your fingers now and say erase all the current humans and erase all the current human keyboards and make them all dvorak i would be fine with that because it does make a little bit more sense to me at least someone thought about it a little bit yeah exactly and 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 that is great unfortunately whether or not that amounts to anything more i mean the figures that i i saw in in a few studies were one to two percent you know that's 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 not much of an improvement I mean, it's in it's an improvement but it's not much of an improvement so i don't know i at least they thought about it but still um and whilst the majority of keyboards in the world are not uh dvorak it'll always be an argument against because otherwise what are you going to do shove your dvorak keyboard in your backpack and take it with you so you ever at someone else's computer I just hang on a second i gotta get my keyboard before i can start typing everybody i know who does that does just uses a qwerty keyboard but just changes the you know the input thing you know in the little input menu with a little flag in the menu bar or whatever and yeah. you know just types the wrong keys you know so if you come up to their computer and try to type something it just comes out as gibberish because they're, they're using a qwerty keyboard with a dvorak key like that yeah, but then the keys don't match. Like if you're pushing a K on the qu- in the K position on their keyboard, it what's the letter K? But you're not seeing a K on. Just like yep. that's confusing. That's just the brain. that's just how they work all day. That's just insane. These people are special. I could not do that. Maybe I look at my keys too much. That's the damning indictment right there. I've just admitted. Yeah, well, no, there's a couple of people work have the keyboard that has nothing printed on the keycaps. It's just all black. You ever seen that one? <laughs> wow no i haven't that's and it's an entire like full extended keyboard where the keys are entirely featureless black that's intense <laughs> wow okay you should get cool. one of those it'll train you not to look at the keys anymore well that's yeah, that's true if nothing else that would definitely be a side effect okay so after all this gear chairs desks you know track pads track balls mice whatever that we've talked about byo or demand your company pays for it. And I've heard different things. People that believe that they've got they've got issues with RSI and companies, some companies will, will pay for it. Some people won't. Some companies won't. Some of them require you to go and get a medical certificate proving that you've got uh, or a doctor thinks that you've got, which isn't necessarily proof, but whatever. The point is that, you know, should you bring your own or should you demand that your company pays for it if that's what you're doing for a living? Ultimately, in my opinion, um, <laughs> It's just quicker and easier to get the stuff you want if you do it yourself. And I guess the the way that I try and approach this is if my job or my hobby involves working on a computer, then I want the right tool for the job or perhaps the best tool for the job to make my job or my hobby easier. And yeah, the computer is the tool of my trade. So therefore, I would like it to be a good tool for, of, of my trade. And a better tool is just going to reduce my stress, make my life easier in the long run beyond RSI, but obviously RSI, you know, being the topic of this, the focus of this. But, and I think that if you take the time and a little bit of money to invest in a better tool for your job, even if your employer won't, you'll get a better net result uh, in the end. At least that's what I think. However, in some cases, you're not allowed to bring in your own PC or Mac into a company, but generally they won't ban you from bringing in your own mouse, keyboard, trackpad, or ergonomic device of your choosing. And I'm pretty sure they wouldn't argue if you bring in your own chair. But I, because I've seen people that have done that, they've just they've given up with the corporate red tape and said, you must justify why you have to sit on an ergonomic ball. And they've just brought their own in and said, yeah, whatever. So um, that's just my opinion. I guess. Yeah, for companies like for paying for it, 
it's in the company's best interest to do this. In the grand scheme of things, how much it costs to have an employee, this is peanuts. Uh, oh, sure. And it is way less than paying for like disability, you know, <laughs> or having, having to not have that employee's work or having to take time off. That costs the business much more. Like, mm-hmm. it is silly for them not to pay for that. The downside of, of companies paying for it is very often it's difficult to get like the exact thing that you want like oh we have a keyboard tray if you want a keyboard tray this is the one you get we bought a bunch of them in bulk this is what you get and then you feel like oh well they're getting me this thing i guess i'm gonna use this one but i would actually prefer this specific one and it's like the worst of both worlds like well we're giving you one but you're going to turn your nose up at it and spend your money on your own anyway and then like you said that gets into rules of am i allowed to bring my own stuff like i've always kind of done a hodgepodge like company will pay for a lot of stuff I'll bring some stuff of my own in there. Like at work, I use my own mouse and it's sitting at a tray table that I brought from home, which is the right height for my mouse to be at because I don't like using, you know, the keyboard tray. Yep. Often has this little tiny area for the mouse and I want a much bigger area for the mouse to have more freedom of motion. Mm-hmm. So I have, you know, like cobbled together what, what you need to cobble together. But in the end, it's silly for any company not to support its employees in being able to get whatever working environment they're most comfortable in because it benefits everybody. It's win-win. You know, it's the company and the employee. Absolutely. Uh, But the the resistance that I've come across is, uh, and I've actually had IT people say this to me. It's like, oh, if I give you that, then everyone will expect it. And it's like, well, everyone will expect a, a, a working environment where you're not going to cause, you know, irreparable damage to their, you know, Um, from excessively using bad gear or something. I mean, I, I don't know. I, mean, I guess that's a, maybe that's an exaggeration, but it just sort of stuck in my neck a little bit. And, and I think that a lot of it's the same thing with screens and so on. You know, that the standard the the standard screen size is seventeen inch, four to three. That's what you get. That's what everyone gets. And uh, I started bringing my twenty four inch monitor because I couldn't be bothered trying to get one the other way. This is like six years ago. But anyway. They're not that expensive either, but all right. Okay, last topic before we close, the last element of this topic before we close is, is it all in your head? Because I got a an email because I, I post the topic list uh, that I'm of subjects I'm going to be covering and it's up on, the, on uh, techdistortion.com slash topics. Have a look, check it out. And this one was coming up. And I got an urgent email uh, only a few days ago uh, when we were originally scheduled to record and it got, literally got in sort of at the last minute as it were. And they had been through an interesting experience. So I think some of it's worth worth just quickly repeating. And that is that um, you know, if you do fall, if you've had issues with RSI and you've gone to a more than one doctor or you know, if you've been suffering with it for years yeah, and it's been de- defined as diffuse RSI, so there's no medical reason that they can find that's wrong, then it could well be um, psychosomatic uh, in nature. So, and the thought is that analytical people or overthinkers, oh, like me maybe, I don't know, maybe at high risk. But uh, anyway, fan of the show didn't want to be named, but that's okay, uh, sent, in, sent in about this. And in their case, their RSI got to a point where they had to stop working as a programmer, pretty much had to stop working as a programmer for a period of time. They could only work on... Uh, touch keyboards like Fingerworks Touch Stream, which they mentioned uh, for a limited amount of time each day, and uh, they had it was the pain was so bad that in their personal life they had trouble pushing a shopping cart around because of the pain. And uh, they went they, after several years of talking to different doctors, doing all sorts of tests, different treatments, different uh, ergonomic devices of different kinds. Um, it ended up being a psychosomatic issue, and by visiting a psychologist that you're able to potentially address those issues instead and realize that it could be in your head. 
So if you develop you know, bad RSI and doctors can't diagnose it specifically, it may be worth a shot because it becomes self-reinforcing. I think I'm feeling a pain, therefore I'm going to avoid doing this. But the more you think about the fact that you're avoiding it, then may you still you you think that you're you're actually feeling it when in fact it's not actually there. Psychosomatic things. Not a psychologist. So this this dividing line between physical ailments and mental ailments is kind of like I think I talked about this on a hypercritical episode way back when the, the dividing yeah. line between doing things in hardware and in software. It's mostly nonsensical if you th- if you start breaking it down. What does that mean, doing something in hardware or software? Like, your software is running on hardware. The GPU is hardware. You're doing it on hardware because it's being done in the GPU, but it's software when you do it on the CPU. They're both hardware. They both take instructions. They both pull data that, you know. So mental and physical, right? Uh, is it a physical problem or is it a mental problem? Well, your brain is part of your body, whether you like it or not. It is not a separate thing. It is not cut off from the rest of your body. In fact, it is an integral part of your body. And things that happen in your brain absolutely do affect your body. And it's not like, oh, you have a mental symptom, then it has a physical effect. Mental is physical. Like It is a physical thing. It's not magic. It's a big fatty lump of things inside. It's connected to the whole rest of your body. Right. Mm-hmm. So the idea that it's surprising that things that go on in your head affect other parts of your body, all of which are connected to the thing in your head, is not crazy. I mean, just the simple thing is like stress and what stress does in terms of inflammation. That's something that's easier to understand. And, you know, that conditions that have anything to do with inflammation can be exacerbated by stress, right? Mm-hmm. You know, beyond that is like, well, I have, anx- like you said, I have anxiety about this thing. I'm worried about this. That's causing stress. That's causing me to concentrate on this thing. Um, you know, or, or just tension when when you are when you're tense about something and it causes your muscles to contract and your, your blood vessels to constrict. And that could, you know, could cause all, like you could get RSI like symptoms from that type of stuff. Now it's all part of the same giant collection of things. So I find it completely non-surprising that things that go on in your brain can affect your body in, in dramatic ways, because so many things that go on quote unquote in your head can cause huge changes to your body. Like, I mean, for people who have, back problems or anxiety or even heart conditions or just like all sorts of things can cause big physical symptoms so i'm I'm very aware of that in terms of rsi that being stressed or being tense or being intense uh can be the difference between feeling fine and feeling terrible at the end of a session of using the computer mm-hmm. absolutely yeah I, I and i just i think that it was it was definitely worth mentioning because it's so easy to fall into the, the the trap of you know there is a medical scientific reason for absolutely everything and um, whilst that may well be true if you drive down to the, the to the finest level of details okay what what exactly causes stress in the brain okay well maybe you're you're getting stressed about something and that's causing the release of a certain hormone and you, that hormone drives you know and so on and so forth I mean maybe you could break it down to that level whether there's value of breaking it down to that level or not I don't know but yeah, but see, I, but that's the that's the simplest case. The the reason we draw the dividing line between quote unquote physical and mental is because the brain is so fiendishly complex, and we don't yeah. understand how it works, and it's really difficult to figure out how it works because it's not particularly accessible. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's not. right? And it's it is complex. It is more complex than a giant muscle that squishes blood around your body. You know what I mean? Like in the heart, yeah, it's true. pretty complex, and it's so so we we draw this dividing line because it's like. 
we don't really know what the hell's going on in there. All we know is that thing's hooked up to everything else. And then something happens in there, you know, and so then it becomes the realm of psychologists because they're like, well, we don't know how your brain works either, but we have a series of heuristics that we can use to try to influence, you know, they, they try to make you feel better mentally and that affects. And so it goes off into this entire other realm because it's not, you know, we have, we have, the only way we have to influence the brain is through like sensory organs, your ears, your eyes, you know, you have to hear things, think like, that's it. Like we can't, you know, we can't do the kind of things that we can do like uh you know we we can't ice it we can't put heat on it we can't splint it we you know we can't massage it we can't flex it like all you got to do is like you got to talk through it through this black box and you got to you know so it becomes a different kind of science but it's not because it's 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 the same as the rest of your physical body we just have to treat it differently because our understanding of it is so incredibly primitive compared to our understanding of the rest of the body and our understanding of the rest of the body isn't that great either so no. we're all kind of in the dark about our bodies here we're just doing the best we can Yep, exactly. Well said. I think we should probably wrap it up. And at this point... Um, oh, you forgot some... one more thing. I... Oh, yes, one more thing. Lieutenant. One more yes. item for on, on the RSI checklist that I would think that is perhaps the most important thing and is the one piece of advice that I give people when they ask about RSI, like on Twitter uh -huh. or something, where I don't have time to go into a big, long conversation about it. Uh, mm -hmm. it it's, you know, the, the, the snarky two-word reply is type less. <laughs> this is perhaps the most important thing you can do if you have any kind of RSI problems. Whatever it is you're doing and whatever it is that hurts, yep. do less of that. And yep. that's the easy one. And the second one, which you already mentioned, is mm. if you're going to do the same amount, do not do that amount contiguously. Take yes. breaks. So do, do you whatever it is that you're doing, do it less. And while you're doing it, take breaks. If that means getting a program that... that sets an alarm off and locks your screen and makes you take a break, do whatever it takes. Those two things, in addition to all the ergonomic stuff we talked about, are I think they're equally important with all the ergonomics. Just do it less. And how do you do it less? Like You're like, well, I got to go to my job. How do, how do I possibly do this thing less? Uh, if you are doing things that are not part of your job that involve the same thing, find other things to do. So, you know, when I have the big RSI problem, I say, you know, I, I program when I'm at work, and I program for fun, and then I go to sleep. And I say, I have to find something else to do for fun. And it was it, it was an interesting phenomenon where I was like, now I feel good about watching a television program. You know why? Because watching a television program is not typing. And so I'd be like, you should start getting into movies, television shows, things that do not involve you sitting in front of a computer and using a mouse and a keyboard. And I would do those things, and I would feel good the way people feel good when they eat their vegetables or go to the gym. Because I'm watching a TV show, it's like, I'm doing something good for my body by finding a hobby that does not involve typing, you know, or go jogging or whatever. If you want to do a double, I mean, like I'm getting exercise and I'm not on the computer, but just type less, use the mouse less, use the computer less and take breaks. Excellent. I know you can't see my notes because I don't share my notes either, but that's okay. But that's pretty much exactly what was <laughs> the simplest piece of advice is to just get up every so often and take a break. You know, however you, whatever that break, you know, turns out to be, if you want to go and do yoga for 60 seconds, what it doesn't matter. Just change what it is you're doing that's causing you the RSI issues or could potentially lead to RSI issues. And there's a whole bunch of different studies out there, sort of percolated it down. And the general consensus seems to be take a one minute break about every 15 minutes, but extend it. So every second breaks, every 30 minutes, extend that to five minutes. So take a minute break, then work for another 15, take a five minute break, then work for another 15, take a one minute and so on. And just, just taking that break, getting up and moving around. Uh, yeah, and, and take a break doesn't mean, okay, well, I'm, I'm typing away at this email. Oop, now I'm going to change and I'm going to, I am somebody, you know, using the same keyboard and mouse. That, that's not what I mean. Get up. 
And, jeez, uh, I tell you, I've given, uh, I sort of, someone else asked me this a while ago and they're like, I'm in the zone. I can't get up now. And I'm like, I don't care if you're in the zone. Get up anyway. Even if you don't get up, even like I find that the breaks that they recommend, you know, this, you know, how, mm. how often should I break, take a break and how long should I be? Mm. The worse off you are, the more frequent your breaks should be. Like taking a one second break every five seconds for the entire day <laughs> is probably better than going for 30 minutes straight and taking a five minute break. If yeah. you're if you're bad off, like if you if you have a big RSI issue and there's a big flare up, like ten seconds of continuous typing versus a minute versus two minutes, that can be the world of difference. That can be the difference between injury and non-injury if you're in a, a delicate situation where you're trying to recover from something. Yes. Like you know, the the total amount of time means like don't be sitting. You know, if you're sitting in front of the computer from nine to five because you got it for your job, try not to be even anywhere near a computer between that. Use an iPad or something like use something different. Do a different motion. Do you know? anything get away from it but while you're there get one of those programs that prompts you and if you're having a problem dial it up to some absurd thing that makes you take a two second break every 30 seconds like that sounds mm -hmm. crazy uh but two second break isn't that long just give if you're a programmer it'll give you time to think give you time to breathe there are many fringe benefits you could become a better programmer by just chilling and thinking before you type you know mm. or thinking between statements that you type you know yeah that's it and one of the things I'm looking forward to with the Apple Watch is the it, it tracks how often you stand up and sit down, and it's got the nice little dial, and it shows you. So you can you know you could set timers and so on. There's there's an app uh, written by um, uh, Jim Biancolo um, called uh, Stand Up, and you know that that's one example uh, of I am sure dozens of different apps that 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 help to time to tell you well yeah it's time to get up and move around and go, go the, refill your beverage more often than you think you should if you have a cup exactly. of water go dump out half a cup of water get a fresh cup of water just any yeah. excuse to get up and go walk someplace else and the good thing about liquids is if you consume enough liquids then you have another motivation don't if you have to if you have to you know go to the bathroom don't try to hold it in just go as soon as you feel like any reason yep. to get up and walk around is good because and, and i think this is fighting against the zone thing the whole like i'm in the zone i gotta keep typing no you will hurt yourself like that's it there maybe that's a young man's thing i remember being in the zone i still kind of get into it like that too but i find that if i am i find that if i'm in the zone and I have to go home because I got to pick up the kids or something. Mm -hmm. I'll have that whole day, uh, you know, that evening and that night and that morning to think about it. And when I come back in the next day, inevitably I will do something. I will undo whatever it is I did in the last, you know, 10, yep. 15 minutes of the previous day because yes. I have now thought of something better. And that's just yep. something that comes with age and wisdom of like knowing that if you give your brain some time to work on this problem, it will come up with a better solution. And that what, what you think is the awesome solution is going to work right now probably would. But if it's all coming in a big flash, maybe think about it a little bit more. I think that when you're in the zone, it gets very much tunnel vision and you, you tend to, to focus in on, yeah, this is going to solve all the problems. This is brilliant. I'm in the zone. I'm going to keep going. And you don't stop to think about the other ramifications beyond the specific issue you're trying to solve. And if you've got... Uh, a bit of code that's going to have a lot of interaction with with other components, other objects, and so on and so forth. Then you'll tend to miss things. And I, yeah, I I totally agree. I found exactly the same thing. I, I take a break. I come back. I always turn out a better code than if I'm in the zone for. You know, I feel yeah. like I'm in the zone. I'm feeling like I'm doing great, but I'm really not. The next day, like let yourself sleep on it because what you'll find out is you had an awesome solution to the wrong problem. And then when you look mm. to the big picture, you're like. Does this problem even need to be solved? What am I actually doing here? Do I even need this entire class? Do I even need this entire thing? Is like, is this an actual problem, or have I, you know, have I framed the entire thing wrong? And I got to delete all of that because it's the wrong approach. Even if it's like a brilliant implementation of that approach, like yeah. I, I find that all the time. And so, yeah, taking breaks and thinking is beneficial. Yeah, absolutely.
So uh, I find when I want to take a break from, and one of the great things, I know people have been ragging on uh, tablets recently saying, oh, tablet sales are slumping, therefore it's the end of tablets or whatever, but no, it's not. But irrespective, the point is that that is now a new different data entry method using different set of muscles. So what I'll do is if I get fatigued or I want to take a break from typing at a keyboard and I'm at home, I'll get up and I'll you know continue working on on my iPad on the couch, different seating position, different set of muscles. And you know, that, that's another way I can shake it up a bit and you know and, and that works for me uh so you know i think that's that's great so if, if i had to put an order of priority on improving and you had to get equipment so beyond the free one the completely free one that costs you nothing i guess that's the definition of free anyway uh which is getting up regularly then i would start with the chair uh followed by the desk and your footrest and because everything flows from that um you know it's adjusting your screen height you know if you can get an adjustable height because I know some people they'll, they'll some companies will just give you the monitor and the monitor's on a stand and it's sitting on the desk you can't really adjust the height well if you can get a monitor arm and, and adjust the height then then that's a big help for just, me just get it, a physician's desk reference get a bunch of thick books that's what I have at work just you know you went to college or you got some big books stack mm. them put the monitor on top sometimes it's not the sturdiest in the world but it 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 works I actually worked for a company that can you believe this actually banned you from using books because they said the books were unstable. They had to be company approved monitor stand like squares of plastic. They're probably so, right. But as long as they're know. going to give you the squares of plastic, that's fine. But I'm just saying, oh, like, but, you know, whatever it takes, like, you know, yeah. it, it's for, yeah, things, was, for yeah. things with height adjustments, it doesn't need to be rocket science to get things in the right position. That's true. That's true. I do. I do prefer the monitor arms though, because I can position the screen in exactly the right spot. Um, um, so, uh, but anyway, uh, that's that's getting the nice to have, but not as as important perhaps. And now we're down the list to uh, ergonomic mice and ergonomic keyboards, and that's where a lot of people start. But honestly, I think you get diminishing benefit from them anyway. They, if you currently have RSI, then choosing a different ergonomic mouse or ergonomic keyboard could help. But it depends on specifically what RSI you've got. Try a few different ones and see what works for you. That's the bottom line. But don't think that just getting an ergonomic ergonomic mouse or keyboard is just going to save you. Uh, and then uh, finally, when you're typing, just t- use as soft a touch as possible. And the less strain, the better. And uh, yeah, that's it. Any other any other parting thoughts, John? Any other we've wisdom? Solved, we've solved the world's problems now. We have. Go yes. forth and type. <laughs> or take a or, break from typing. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, uh, cool. Okay. Well, if you don't want to talk more about this, you can reach me on Twitter at John Chigi and my site at techdistortion.com. That's where this podcast is hosted, along with my writing and some other stuff I've done. If you'd like to send any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website. And that's where you'll also find the show notes of this episode under Podcasts Pragmatic. If there are topics you'd like me to cover, you can suggest and vote on them at the site under Topics once you sign up for a free account. I've also started to release excerpts from the show that are one off top that are off topic and are cut from the main episode. I'm calling it Addenda. Look for it under the side under podcasts Addenda. You can follow Pragmatic Show on Twitter to see show announcements and other related stuff. Uh, just quickly, also like to do a final thank you to uh, two sponsors. Firstly, Lynda.com for sponsoring the show. If there's anything you'd like to learn about and you're looking for an easy and affordable way to learn, then Lynda.com can help you out. Instantly stream thousands of courses created by experts in their fields of business, software, web development, graphic design, and lots more. Visit lynda.com slash pragmatic to get a free 10-day trial. If you've ever wanted to learn something new, what are you waiting for? I'd also like to thank Igloo, an intranet you'll actually like. Built with easy-to-use apps like file sharing, blogs, calendars, task management, and lots more. Make sure you visit the URL, igloosoftware, or one word, .com slash pragmatic to get started. It's free for you free for you to use for up to 10 people. No credit card required. Just sign up and start playing today. 
I'd also like to thank my guest host, uh, John Syracuse, for coming on the show. And what's the best way for people to get in touch with you, John? You can find me on Twitter and my last name on Twitter, at Syracusa. Uh, and you can see my website where I almost never write anything these days at hypercritical.co. And you can also find me uh, every week on the Accidental Tech Podcast. That website for that is atp.fm. Fantastic. Well, thanks for everyone for listening. And thanks again, John. It's fun. <laughs> <laughs>